0: Welcome to the Cycling and Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life.
1: Greetings, Space Monkeys. Today's episode is with Scott Monninger, the Iceman. Scott drops a lot of wisdom nuggets on what it's like to ride in an old school Peloton and how he found his way through the sport. He's also a coach coach and he offers some good insights into the mind of the athlete and his coaching methods. So I'm sure you'll appreciate this discussion. We also unpack a bit about group rides since I had so much feedback from my podcast about how group rides are dead. Scott and I decided to tackle that a little bit and he offers some good actionable advice on how we might be able to move forward with group rides, because there are benefits to riding in a group, of course, and Just like everything, it's a spectrum. That said, before we start with the episode, I want to address a few corrections, addendums, footnotes, and miscellany. After my mountain biking podcast, I got a message from none other than Nick Legan, who works for Shimano. I'm going to read Nick's text. He offered some insight that may be helpful for people who are looking for fitting solutions in the world of mountain bikes. Hello again, friend. Happy New Year. Just finished up your podcast on MTB Fit. Really enjoyed it great to hear from travis brown as well i wanted to share that shimano produces three different q factors in the mountain bike line of cranks a 162 a 168 and a 171 some of this is a function of chain line and not all cranks will clear all chain stays on all bikes also wanted to hear that we produce an xtr spd pedal with four millimeter shorter spindles hence a few more fit options for riders all the best Thank you, for Nick, for reminding me of those facts. I actually wasn't aware that Shimano did make those different Q-Factors on their mountain bikes. I did know about the XTR pedals, and this is a very useful fitting solution for people who need either longer or shorter axles. So in case you don't know, standard axle length on a road pedal is 53 millimeters. For most mountain bike pedals, and Nick will probably correct me on this, it's 55 or 56 millimeters. So when we have a shorter option in the XTR range, really what we're doing is we're bringing the mountain bike spindle closer to a road spindle length. And when we have a plus four millimeter road spindle, we're bringing the road spindle closer to the mountain bike length. So really what you need to know here is there's a shorter option and a longer option in the world of both road and mountain bike spindle lengths. Why do we care? Well, we want to adjust the rider's Q factor or the foot separation distance, as Steve Hogg prefers to say it. Between between the distance between a rider's feet while they're pedaling and this influences stance width which has a direct relationship to the fascial tension of the medial line that runs all the way from the calcaneus or the sorry the medial malleolus all the way up to the groin so that's your inside ankle bone all the way up to your grundle basically there's a band of fascia that runs along this line this inner line of your leg but it's not really a band the band fascia runs continuously throughout the body. It's kind of, it could be approximated to that mesh net that holds all the potatoes in the bag that you find at the grocery store. Only the mesh net runs around each muscle between the muscles and even sometimes through the muscles. It also envelops and surrounds each organ and it's a continual, we'll say sheet, but it's really an organ in and of itself. And so when this fascia, the the space between your groin and your Medial malleolus, your inside ankle bone, becomes too tight. At times, when you change the Q factor or the foot separation distance, that can cause riders problems. The solution to this is lots of sumo squats and mobility work and Aldoa and GPS stretching. Nugget dropped. But that means also that sometimes we want to adjust our axle length to get the foot in the right relationship to the hip and the knee. And when we're looking at the bike, We're looking at the athlete riding the bike during a fit session ideally we want a vertical stacking of those three points that's the head of the femur the tibial tuberosity and the second and third ray in english that means the middle of your hip the middle of your knee and the middle of your foot we want all those things stacked in a nice tidy vertical line during the power phase not everyone will be able to actualize that because some people of course have different little wiggly shapes that happen to their knees as they pedal The most common one being at the top of the stroke, the knees kind of pop out. That's typically a sign of really, really tight internal hip rotators, uh, excuse me, external hip rotators uh, can also be a symptom of many other things, tight IT bands, for example. So without going down the rabbit hole of fitting any farther, what I'm saying is that the longer and shorter pedal axles are a really useful way to help riders adjust the distance between their feet. We can also impact that distance by using cleat lateral adjustment, which Shimano SPD cleats do have some of. However, that comes with impacts or ramifications. And the reason is if we put, if we want to move a rider's foot closer to the crank arm, so we move the cleat all the way outboard, then we move more of the stable surface of the metal cleat further outboard. And we move the fulcrum upon which the foot can tip more towards the center line, and we increase the chance of pronation, especially if the lugs and the mountain bike shoe are worn down because on a Shimano pedal, what determines foot stability in that plane is the contact of the lugs with the pedal body. Sorry, I should have said door alert before I started down that one. So without further ado, now we're going to unpack Scott Moniger. I hope you enjoy this episode. Scott is a slippery little bugger. I've raced against him many times over many years and the vast majority of those times he crossed the line before I did. I'm sure you'll start to sleuth out the reasons why Scott is so clever in this podcast. Enjoy. Hello everyone. Happy new year. Jenna doesn't like when I do that because it references, it destroys the evergreen content of our podcast, but You got to say happy new year. I mean, come on, look what we all just went through. So even if you listen to this in April of 2024, happy new year. Today's guest is none other than Scott Monninger. Hi Scott. But before I even continue with my intro, I just got to address this wandering elephant in the room. I've heard it pronounced exactly 51%. Both ways. Is it Moninger or Moninger? Hard G or Soft G. It was the
0: former Moninger, it's a hard G. I got it right. Yes, you did. You win. Boom. You're right. at fifty one point one percent. <laughs> Outstanding. But Hooray. I can understand the confusion because you know, fifty one percent of the race announcers out there got it wrong and vice versa. <laughs> right. So, you know. Right, so right, yeah, right. Yeah. I was just happy they were saying my name. That usually meant I was doing something right. something positive. See, so, there you go. There
1: you, yeah. yeah. I've had people misspell my last name for years, so I get it. Yeah, mine's the minority spelling. So Scott is one of the winningest bike racers in American history. If you want to look up all the stuff he's done, go forth and make the keyboard mudras because there's lots of information abound. I think he won pretty much every major bike race in the U S he's a crafty all around racer who has victories in road races, criteriums, time trials, state races. He's a versatile rider and is truly a passionate athlete with a deep love for the sport, which is evidenced by the fact that he is still like me. 100% bike dork, top to bottom to this day. His characteristically stoic expression on the bike and ruthless competitive nature have earned him the nickname the Iceman. And you got to check out our fantastic artwork we will include in the show notes and the Instagram drop. Because it's worth seeing
0: if you haven't checked it out. Who is the artist who did that for you? Uh, his name Michael Morris. Okay. Uh, originally resided in Kansas City, worked for uh, Hallmark Cards, and he's now a Colorado resident. So, oh, cool! Yeah, so he chased me out here, I think. Nice. Yeah. And well, it was then. sort of a friend of a friend uh, favor. That, yeah, yeah. But okay. I ended up selling him a bike, so it was kind of yeah. We sort of became friends. But he just did it um, as a as a side project, and and he's kind of known for his caricature, um, yeah, ability. So he yeah. had fun with it. it. Took him a while, he said, to find you know, kind of just encapsulate the what he was looking for, because I had so little expression. Every picture kind of looked the same. He's like, <laughs> well, I don't know. So that turned out really well. Nice. So. I did too. That's cool. So
1: let's start with your origin story. You, you grew up in Atlanta, I believe, or you were born in Atlanta and grew up in
0: Kansas City. Uh, you're close. I was born in Atlanta. was only there about a year. And okay. then my father got transferred to Wichita, Kansas. And little known fact, we actually then moved. Uh, we were only there for a couple of years and then moved to Aurora. My father was working for Martin Mar- Marietta down there. So from oh. like age three to five, I was actually a Colorado resident. Huh. Then he got transferred back to Wichita. And that's where it all kind of went uh, south. No kidding. <laughs> my dad worked for Martin Marietta as well. Right on. So and I they was, were in Denver. That's yeah, funny. So from like age five to 18, Wichita was my home. Okay. Which unfortunately is nothing like Kansas City. Kansas City is actually kind of rolling terrain, Wichita is pan flat. Okay. So, and windy. So the wind makes you strong. I guess. I guess everyone would <laughs> always wondered how a guy from Kansas or Wichita specifically could climb, but it's, right as you know, it's really more about body type than, than terrain or where you live. I mean, Wait, you can climb? You only won Mount Evans what six times? Six times. Good memory. Yeah, good memory. there you go. All right. I mean, Belgian guy Lucien Van Amp, won KOM jersey of the tour like five times. So I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's, so, really, it's really about physique more than than where you grew up. Right the terrain. Yes. yes. Yeah. In my opinion. Okay. So how?
1: What? What was the origin, like, how did you get kindled as a bike racer? Like, were you that nerdy kid who wanted to be on the football team and didn't quite make it? And,
0: you know, like every other kid back, I mean, we're talking early seventies, I started riding a, a bike after school as just a, 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 sort of a freedom vehicle, you know, just hang out with my buddies and we'd, you know, jump things and, um, just see how long skid contest, coasting contest, you name it, we were doing it. And I just never stopped, you know, i then segued into BMX racing from like age 11 to about 13 and then most of my little posse kind of grew up and got cars and into girls. And I was like, you know, I still kind of love this bike thing. And, and my father was a, a weekend warrior, kind of bike dork. So I was sort of surrounded by, by the scene already and it would go and watch him race and everything. So fate would have it that my BMX bike got ripped off after I spent like an entire summer getting it completely dialed. I mean, oh. So it was a work of art. It was oh. like, you know, completely silver frame with all blue parts. And it was a, it was a work of art, but. And did you do the thing with the number plate?
1: Where you like? Oh, yeah, yeah. use the exacto blade, and you've got to make all your little stickers. Yes. And that was like a whole that was the thing
0: cult, right? right. right. No, yeah. really, like I said, this was this was part you know part sport and part art for me. So yeah, um, yeah. The bike got ripped off literally a month after I had it all dialed, and I was just like, you know what? Maybe that's a sign. So I, I took the insurance money and just um, upgraded. I, my father had like that; I I had a bunch of stuff laying around, so I got a frame, and then coupled together a road bike. And so around age fourteen, started doing the local Saturday morning you know, club ride, which back then really was a club ride. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, myself and a couple of the younger kids we turned it into a race. Um, everyone's like, you guys should race, take out a license. So the next year at age 15, you know, I did the first year junior thing. Um, and started traveling around Arkansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Missouri, just anywhere that, uh, you know, within about eight hours, you know, we would, we would consider a feasible drive to go do a bike race, believe it or not. And were you going with your dad most of the time or with a club or a uh, It was both. I mean, we were you know yeah. my dad and I were in the same club and so it would be yeah, eight or ten people packed into a van. And mm-hmm. um that was actually really at that time pretty pretty eye opening for me because you know, as a as a ten, twelve, fifteen year old kid, you don't really know much beyond your your twenty mile radius. And to go to some of these cool towns like Fayetteville, Arkansas or um lawrence kansas i mean it's all relative but those were pretty cool towns compared to wichita kansas so it sort of gave me a, a mm-hmm. view into what uh um what might be outside the uh the farms of, okay. of wichita so. yeah and fayetteville
1: wow like now it's exploded into this yeah, yeah that's mecca,
0: how long right? that race has been going on i mean i literally did, did that as a first year junior back in yeah. the
1: yeah early 80s
0: and were these like were they mostly crits or were there
1: some road races mixed in or was it or both Okay. Yeah, both.
0: Uh, Arkansas was, was almost always road races and or stage races. Um, things like Missouri and, and Nebraska tended to be more crits. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why, and how I became an all rounder. I mean, I literally weighed 95 pounds back then. I was tiny. I was just one of those kids that didn't really fully develop until, until I was about 21. So mm-hmm. at 15, you can imagine actually one of those pictures I sent you was, was me at 16. Um, I'm pretty much a skin and bones, you know? Um, But I had to develop some tactical skills because, you know, everything was so flat, especially right around Wichita. So I'd go out with two or three guys after school and we would just – we'd race for city limit signs, which, you know, where I lived on the edge of town, there was a city limit sign about every five miles out in the farm country. So Mm -hmm. we would just do town to town. And, um, you know, I couldn't out sprint anybody, but I could outsmart them by, you know, just playing the wind and the crosswinds and timing and maybe I'd go a mile from the the finish line or whatever. But Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how I sort of honed some of my non-natural skills um, because I am really just – I think at the core, just kind of a steady state climber uh, um, slash time trialist is probably be my, hmm. my specialty or, or was um, certainly not sprinting, but yeah, if I got to the top of the hill with three or four guys, I was generally pretty confident that I could beat them. I just had, kind of had that extra snap that, that I probably developed, you know, at age 15, 16, whatever. I'm um, doing all those, towns. doing all those crits and everything. That's yeah. really interesting. I think a lot of riders maybe
1: don't consider how much their local training environment And the tools they have at their disposal influence their long-term development you know it's like you look at riders like the mccormicks what are they good at they're going going up like two minute long hills right right out of the saddle in big gears because they have to do that to get home yeah Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. because that's what they do for four hours every day or whatever and and so that's really interesting like your natural off the couch ability is probably steady state climber but then you grew up in this environment that forced you to be crafty forced you to learn and think ahead forced you to sprint so that helped you develop into an all-around athlete that's that's cool
0: Yeah, and I certainly learned about drafting right away, number one, because it's so flat. Everyone's kind of rolling along pretty fast, and the wind was always howling. So, I mean, you know, for six months, it blows out of the south, and the other six months, it blows out of the north. But, you know, Mm -hmm. everything is a square grid where I trained or where I rode, so – um you would just naturally switch left side if you're going north and you know mm-hmm. uh, vice versa and as a smaller guy I mean I could draft off anyone basically but I always you can find the sweet spot pretty clearly so I'm always shocked when people are like hey which which side should I be sitting on it's like really you don't feel that you know because right. I, I feel it on my my cheeks or my forearms or my wherever mm-hmm. any exposed skin or I just feel it in and how I'm leaning my bike yes um, you know if it's strong enough so I'm, yeah. always, I'm always shocked by people that have actually ridden a long time and don't have a sense of which side of the wheel to sit on because to me it's it's it's, it's more it's more than second nature i mean it's just it's i agree natural
1: yeah i agree riding on the front range here as a kid i felt the same thing right got my ass kicked in so many road races where it was like just a painful lesson like that i mean literally 12 inches of bike position could be the difference between easily surviving in the group and getting nuked in 500 meters or 800 right. meters when guys are going full gas because it's if an efficient pace line it's eight on one Ten on one, twelve on one, depending right. on how well that group's working together. You're fighting that wind; it's
0: just a matter of time. For and you if you to can't build. feel it, you can see it. I mean, just look up at the yeah. flags, look up at the uh, you know the the wind socks or the tumbleweeds that are going. I mean, it's just, right. there's a million things out there that are telling you which way the wind's blowing or which way it's going to be blowing as soon as you make that turn. Yes, that, that's coming up, and so yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, all those things combined just made me a very kind of intuitive and very, I, you know, sort of an aware, um, cyclist. Cause again, I didn't have a ton of natural ability at that point. Mm-hmm. I just, my background was BMX, which was going all out for 90 seconds, which again, wasn't, uh, wasn't my strong suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of success at, at BMX riding, but
1: yeah. Um, and riding in that wind just crafts you into being a very efficient rider. That's
0: yeah. And I think it, it forces you to to be low and feel comfortable being low. You know, I mean? yep. I'm actually not a, a super tall big guy anyway. Most of my length is in my, my torso. So right. as long as I can get low and, and stay flexible, then I can get yeah. uh, a lot of draft off just about anybody. I think you and I are similar in that respect. Yeah. 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 That's cool. It also
1: forces you to really step up your handling game when you're in a group and learn how to feel the almost organic flow of a Peloton. Because when you're you guys are all fighting a crosswind from the right, you know, for example, and everybody's stacked up. You're, you know, it's like to a beginning cyclist, front wheel overlap is this sort of right. seen as this thing of death, you know, like never overlap wheels. And that's 101. That's a fair piece of advice. Right. But in the wind, you have to overlap wheels. You do it constantly. And the way to not go down, of course, is to pay acute attention to the wave-like patterns that happen in the group. So if you're eight guys back and you're stacked diagonally in an echelon, and the rider up front twitches you know by the time it gets to you it's going to be more than a twitch nitified. it's
0: going to yeah. be a lot more than a twitch
1: right? right so you're watching that you're watching those lead riders all the time with that peripheral vision and you're almost feeling it right yeah. and even when you're really on tapped into that wave sometimes the the wave hits you and there's yeah. almost nothing you can do anyway that's just sort of negative consequence of potentially riding in a group but most of the time when experienced riders are riding together in the wind like that that's why they can be so efficient and just chunk take chunks and chunks of times out of the next group that's not working as well and
0: and I do do think it forces you to kind of switch on you know that's not a time let's say you're doing a a square kind of road race and you've got a a 12 mile section of of serious crosswind that's not where you want to be digging into your pockets and getting food out or possibly even drinking that's really when you like I said you want to be watching straight ahead and watching the guy that's eight wheels ahead of you because like you said he's going to have to swerve for a dog or um, roadkill yep. or something like that so
1: or everybody's using the road gutter to gutter so right. when that guy's on the gutter in the limiter you're in the gutter you're balancing like how much draft do i get versus how much sand and tumbleweeds and right. goat heads for those of you who don't know what a goat head <laughs> is it's like nature's perfect device to flat a bicycle tire and it exists on every shoulder in colorado and i don't know you guys have goatheads in in kansas yeah. too yeah so, yeah, have, so everything everything, I kind of everything bad we Midwest. have in kansas everything bad <laughs> so you're neg- you're negotiating that like hmm I've got the carrot of the rider in front of me in this nice big fat draft that I want to live in this dead wind, but man, it's like, how much risk do I want to take? So
0: this- Yeah, and it's, it's kind of an anticipation thing that, like I said, if you're doing a race where you know there's going to be a section of crosswind, that's, you know, you want to be prepared for that. You want to hit that having Absolutely. already topped off your, you know, you've taken water, your gel and you've taken yes. your fluid and whatever, and you've just dealt with, you know, you've got your arm warmers off or your wind vest ditched yep. to the car. So the, that's kind of go time.
1: Totally. Uh, and you're I just think, ready to
0: go into the blender. Yeah. And you can always tell people that have never done that scenario or never been in a serious crosswind, like, holy crap. I mean, it is sort of like the difference in warming up for a time trial versus doing the time trial. Yes. Um, one of them is all about prep, the other one's actually execution. So when you're in that that moment, you've just got to be ready to go and not distracted by by all that other stuff.
1: That's a great way yeah. to think about it. And that segues me into a perfect part of our conversation, which is how um road racing is dying in America in the US. And it reminds me of the Vulted Day Bisbee, which was, of course, a staple stage race for us when we were we're talking like late 80s, early 90s, even probably
0: made it as far as maybe late 90s, 90, like 95, 96, somewhere in there. I feel like the last year I did it when it was certainly on the down downward slide was 2002. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I, okay. I, I got my 200th win in, in Bisbee. 2002. Nice. Yeah, so. In the crit or? Um, time trial. Oh, it was uphill time trial. Yeah, Yeah, up the prologue.
1: Yes, yes. So, this is a, I think it was a five day stage race in this little nowhere town in Bisbee, Arizona. Bisbee, Arizona. It was kind of like tucked in a canyon and was the perfect place for a stage race. You could
0: see Mexico, I think, at night. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Really, really south. Vacant roads, big highways, lots of climbs, lots of cool stuff. So, they had a prologue, they had a flat TT, and then a couple road races that finished with these climbs that were around, I don't know, maybe six, seven K long each. And I cut my teeth on that race a lot. I remember the first year I went there, just got, absolutely annihilated, like limping home every day, you know, going as hard as I can to finish 188th. Like just got my ass kicked. This is probably 91 or 92 first or second year as a senior. But then I remember this next year I went back, was a little better prepared. And one road race in particular that really goes into exactly what we were just describing was basically a giant lollipop. Mm-hmm. You go out on this kind of diagonal road and then you've got a big rectangle. And I think you did two laps in the rectangle. Then you took the lollipop stick back into town and you sprinted for the, for the win. I think it was called Tombstone Road Race or something. Yeah, I think you're right.
0: Something appropriate like that. I think you're right.
1: (laughs) So we're heading out on this lollipop section and I'm, I'm already got my Scott Monitor note pad going. I'm like, I know where the wind's going to be. I got destroyed in this road race last year. I'm going to make the lead group. I'm going to be at the right place at the right time. And sure enough, we turn, I think it was north was the first leg maybe. And man, the side wind comes and the field just within 800 meters, the field's in five groups, riders all over the place, bodies, bottles, you know, people going everywhere, riding off the road. And and I ninja my way into that front group. And it was, I mean, we're talking, this is when Pelotons were what? 160, 180 yeah, riders. Right, right. I made the first group of, I was probably 24 dudes. So this is an elite selection for me. This is one of the better moments of my early racing career. I was like, holy crap, I did it. You know, and I was probably in the group with you and Dave Mann and Mingleman and Ron. <laughs> right. And I don't know who else, a bunch of Spago guys. Okay. And uh, who, 92, who else would have been in that Peloton? I'm not sure. This is probably 92 or 93, like. I Some mean, believe it believe or not,
0: in that, during that time period, we used that race as prep for Tour de Pont, Right. Uh, because oh, it was yeah. really nothing else. Yeah. I mean, ideally we would have gone to, to mm-hmm. Europe for two weeks or something, but that just wasn't feasible at the time. So it's yeah. like, let's just go to Bisbee. And, you know, we were doing miles afterwards and before and everything and, and totally. just kind of using it as a training race. But, um, yeah, there were good teams that, you know, I think, I know that Chevy LA Sheriff followed yes. us and pretty much did the same, same, same program uh, pro- protocol. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah it was, yeah it would have been pretty star studded that year. So
1: I make that first leg of the, of the rectangle. I'm in the lead group. I'm 24 Mm -hmm. guys. I'm like, I made it, man. This is like, I'm already starting to think way ahead. you know, there's another hundred K of racing to go at least, but I'm thinking way ahead. I'm like, okay, how's this going to play out? You know, is the field going to shatter again? Is this group going to get more selected? Blah, blah, blah. But it was like, you know, when you're reading a book, you can only see through the next chapter. Maybe this was my big success. We took the next right turn, which would have been East, I suppose. And we were in a dead tailwind Ooh. and suddenly I was 134 pounds of toothpick trying to keep mm-hmm. up with, you know, Dave Mann and all right, these right. super powerful riders. I and mean, we turned into a tailwind, aerodynamics means nothing. That's my weapon to play. That's my card I've got. Yeah. I don't have a lot of horses. I don't have a lot of eo 2 man. I was, so I had clearly made the selection on the first rectangle got completely dumped on the tailwind. <laughs> so I was the only guy who didn't make it on the next stretch. It's
0: kind of a slow death too. If you get dropped in tailwind, oh, you know, like it, so it just painful. happens inch by inch by inch, you know, where, like if you get yes. dropped on a climb, it's gone, you know, it's yeah. pretty much over in yeah. 30, 40 seconds, but tailwind's <laughs> a slow death.
1: Then we turned right, which was South. So then I had to ride in the sidewind by myself, you know, lost the four minutes to go from between the first group to the second. Probably. I think I got dumped by the, you know, it's like the wind was out of my sails. I probably went. Finished in the fourth group. I'm pretty sure by the time I rolled in, I got to see Dave Mann putting the leader jersey on. Just as I was crossing the line, he was already being awarded the leader jersey, and I remember him taking off his Coors Light jersey and just seeing like every rib, every that guy was so unbelievably ripped. Oh, he was a
0: specimen. I mean, he literally looked like <laughs> a thoroughbred racehorse. Where yeah, you would just see veins in places that that you know, like I'm a pretty lean guy, or I was, but I I never saw veins where that guy had veins. It was so, incredible. Yeah, it's like what? Right. Yeah, and he and he lived on. White bread, butter, just all the things you shouldn't eat if you wanted to be lean, I guess. But, you know, they also say, you know, to to burn fat, you got to eat it. And he was certainly the epitome of that because, I mean, he was – it was all about the British diet. I mean, just a lot of fat, a lot of heavy stuff. Like Um, blood sausage and Yeah, yeah. He was by no no means uh, a vegetarian or or even Hmm. a food guy at all. He just, you know, ate whatever. Interesting. And drank beer like it was water. So he was (laughs) just one of those guys. I don't think it really mattered. He turned everything into fuel. And he was a beast. He was a beast. beast.
1: Yeah. And that was a head exploding moment for me as I crossed yeah. the line because I was like, that's what a real bike racer looks like. Okay.
0: Yeah. Noted. You know. Guys like that, you know, it's like <clears throat> they make you raise your game. You know, it's mm-hmm. like when Peyton Manning came to the Denver Broncos, you know, they kind of sucked before he got there. And then all of a sudden everyone's just like, holy crap, we got, we got to deal with Peyton Manning. Up. Right. We got to right. step it up. And so that's kind of what happened to our team because hmm. like Swart used to try to train with a guy and they would just half wheel each other, you know, all day long. And it just <laughs> made both of their, you know, yeah. one year they went and they were just basically – Turned the Tour de Pont into a training ride for the two of them. You know, they uh-huh. just took turns with the jersey and everything, and it was insane. Wow. Yeah. It really yeah. Was. Yeah. So, but you know that that wrote that raised the level from you know guys like myself and Engelman and whatnot. It's like, okay, this is this is you know the power mm-hmm. to weight that we need to deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and obviously he had his weaknesses. He couldn't do Mount Evans or something like that. But Dave was an incredibly good time trialist and, and a decent sprinter, and just a, I mean, in the crosswinds, he's the guy you wanted to. He was all around like yeah. a ruler. Yeah. I was yeah very fortunate yeah. that I was teammates with him and not not against him.
1: Yeah. And so that's a great point. You bring up that kind of rivalry. Uh, You know, a lot of riders that we know of are like dynamic duos. They have a a sibling rivalry-esque relationship when they're younger, and it helps push them and lift them to that new level. I had that with JV to a degree, although 99.9% of the time, he just kicked my ass. I think I maybe dropped him or maybe kind of put him under pressure once on a training ride, and that was right before I set the USR record. So I knew I was going good. There you go. But did you have a, a younger kind of brotherly relationship with any riders that really helped to develop you or push you or or maybe you can parlay it into mentors and people that you learn from as a younger rider?
0: Um, early on, I didn't really have that person. But when I joined Coors Light, um, that was my first pro team. So I turned pro with Coors Light in 91. Um, Engelman, and I just seemed to like, I don't know why, but Petty John just decided we were going to be roommates together. So Mike Engelman and I were sort of, you know, Batman and Robin, so to speak. And, you know, we would generally go – one, two, and almost any mountaintop, uh, finish. And, and I, you know, he was just one of those guys that always had that extra gear. You know, I just, I couldn't seem to get to his level, but he inspired me to, to try to, to get there. And and there were plenty of races where, you know, he would see that he'd shelled everyone else. And so he'd ease up and I'd be able to come up to his wheel. And so we'd finish one, two versus me being five minutes behind or whatever. So he was Mm -hmm. very, uh, a very generous guy. And there were plenty of races where I probably shouldn't have been on the podium, but I was just because he, you know, we were teammates and he was like, oh, I don't want to sit up here alone. So let, you know, whether it be Mount Evans or, mm-hmm. or Stratton mountain, whatever it was, he was just always had that extra gear. And I just, you know, I, I, I didn't necessarily train with him very often because he's was one of those guys that just wanted to go out of the driveway at 25 miles an hour. It's like, dude, I can't do this. You know, it's like, there's a thing called a warm up and a cool down. And, you know, right. I, I like, I like to do those things. Um But i saw how the workload that he put him put himself through and you know it just it, it made me realize that that i could do a lot more mm. um because you know you don't know until you try but he was a guy that uh was out there doing it you know i mean he and he would manage to go and finish top 20 at worlds basically just by riding in the mountains of colorado mm-hmm. and doing random you know local races and whatever and he'd go over there and he would finished the same group as bunyo and, and guys like that and i was like wow which know? is so, incredible yeah, it really is yeah. um when, when you look back at it it's like and yeah. oftentimes he was the highest finisher, uh, of the U S team. And there were plenty of guys that were, that were based in Europe that that couldn't even ride at his level. So, yeah. um, the guy was just a machine. really was, but, uh, and sort of like Dave, man, he just, you know, we became close enough friends because we're always roommates and everything. We'd talk about, you know, tactics and this and that. And, um, you know, he wasn't, uh, wasn't maybe as tactically astute as I was. Uh, and I, I had to, to sort of overcome some of my, mm-hmm. my, uh, physical, you know, shortcomings, but, yeah, we, we kind of traded back and forth. I think we, we sort of complimented each other. And so, yeah, he was certainly a guy that, that, uh, you know, kind of showed me the ropes or or just gave me confidence that, uh, you know, if I pushed a little harder, I I could break through and, and it was, there was a turning point, you know, I can remember in 98, we were teammates at that point on navigators. And, um, I was in a small group with he and JV and a few other guys and racing up Mount Evans in a freaking fog storm or something. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, I, I ended up, uh, taking off and, and, you know, winning by a minute or 30 seconds or whatever it was, but, uh, it was kind of a turning point, mm-hmm. but yeah, just a great, great competitor. And just, a, a, another one of these specimens, you know, just, just yeah. a guy was meant to race a bike.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's interesting also because I think, you know, it always depends on what floor you're on, what floor of the building you're on. You look to the next floor and people look like they're so much better than you and three floors up. It's almost inconceivable, but that same model really applies even at the level of professional sport in the sense that, We know, you know, when we race with our, our compatriots, we know the guys who are barely hanging on for dear life. We know the guys who are, or the women who are, you know, really like they're driven and that's why they succeed because they're problem solvers. Or as the expression goes for someone who's got a, why there's always a, how, you know, you just solve problems. If you're really passionate about something, you're really driven to do something. And maybe in that case, it leads people to do things like overcome chronic injuries or physical shortcomings or a tendency to always get tendonitis. or like you were saying, you know, maybe you're not the best sprinter, but you you grew up in a town with lots of sprints. You had to it forced you to be crafty and and refine your tactical knowledge and versus the people who are on the next floor would be the Engelmans and the man's the just absolute just specimens of specimens or the point one of point one or whatever you want to phrase it. It's like the people just cruise through the sport and I think all those perspectives are really interesting and valuable. I would argue that to a degree, maybe there's some perspective of how in your case and in my case, we're both coaches now. And so we see other athletes and you have to evaluate those athletes and kind of, the, the coaching one-on-one, the first step is to figure out your rider and know them and figure out what their weaknesses are and what their strengths are so that you can start to craft them into the direction they want to go based on their goals and their desires in the sport. Right. And so you have to kind of evaluate where they are on that building model. You know, are they on the third floor or the 42nd floor or whatever? And I would argue that because riders such as yourself and myself have had to, when you, when you are given a a huge hammer at the beginning, you don't necessarily have to find all the other tools to get the job done. And a big hammer to, to switch analogies is really a powerful blunt force instrument, but it is also a blunt force instrument. So when you're forced to do things like learn how to win town limit signs and hide in crosswinds, cause you don't have all this wa- raw power to throw around it, it expands your toolkit. And then later as a coach, hopefully you can Use those lessons to apply them to other riders and give them little insights like, hey, you know, well, you got dumped in that crosswind section on that second leg of that rectangle. Tell me about that. You know, did you forget that you were in a crosswind and sit up and try to eat a whole power bar? You know, not that anybody eats power bars anymore, but.
0: No, I totally agree. And I think the, the extremely gifted athlete a guy like Lance Armstrong would not make a very good coach because mm-hmm. it did come pretty easy for him just a, a guy that whether he was running swimming cycling was just going to be in the upper echelon right of that and i'm not saying that the guy didn't work hard to, to, to get to the level he he did but like you said he didn't have to reinvent himself he didn't have to figure out how to win t- town lines he didn't have to hide in the crosswind he just you know he had a he had a big hammer yeah uh, drugs are no drugs the guy had a massive hammer so yes, he agreed. would I, I just don't think he would be a very good coach versus right. like you said the guy that's a little more versatile that had to kind of use the, the mental side of, of his uh, toolbox as well Mm -hmm. as the physical side to, to get, to get the job done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting back to Engelman, I mean, what made him unique is that his background was from running. So what he showed me was just another level of suffering. You know, he was a guy that would ride race through injury, race through illness. I mean, he finished one year top 10 in the tour de pont with bronchitis. I mean, just coughing up the nastiest green stuff you've ever seen. Anybody else would have you know, gone to the hospital or just left or whatever, but he Mm -hmm. just, you know, he just had that, next level of suffering because that's what runners do. I mean, it's just like to go out and do distance running. You're just always breaking yourself down. You know, mm-hmm. you're always injuring yourself one way or the other. It's not as, um, user-friendly as the bike. <laughs> so, right. uh, so for him going out and riding five, six hours, it was like, oh, this is kind of like therapy, you know, as opposed to just pounding his legs and, and joints into the, into the ground. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's really what I, I took away from him was just the background had, had set him up to where cycling wasn't nearly as painful as, as what his previous sport had been. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think there's something in that too. I mean, a lot of times people ask me like,
1: how in the hell did you do the hour record? That sounds so painful. Well, if you're used to doing 20 minute thresholds, yeah. an hour is a lot harder and longer for sure. But it's also about your context. Like I tell people, well, go do a couple hundred mile mountain bike races.
0: Right.
1: I mean, that's basically a six, seven, nine, twelve 12 hour time trial, depending on the course. So if you really go pretty much flat out for nine hours, suddenly an hour doesn't <laughs>
0: seem that hard. So. Yeah. And I'm sure you've done plenty of 40 Ks, which are not an hour, but pretty darn close. Yeah. You know, at that point, you can see the light at the end of the tunnels. So. Right. Yeah. Right. But there are times when 40 K seemed
1: like a really long distance to me because I'd been focusing on five minute efforts or whatever. Right. There are other times where it was like, well, yeah, 40 K. Okay. I can do this. So it's all about your context, your perspective, right? Absolutely. So, okay. So Engelman played a bit of a mentor for you and, and challenged you in that sibling way. What about coaches. Did you have a coach that worked with you when you were on Coors Light when
0: you turned pro or before you turned pro? No, I was pretty much old school until about mid nineties. Uh, and then Dean Golich was my first coach. Um, that spent two, two or three years with him. Um, and he was great. Um, and I still at that point didn't even have a power meter. It was all just heart rate based. So this Mm -hmm. would have been 97, 98, 99 of that range. Um, and then in the early two thousands, like pretty much everyone else in Boulder County, I got aligned with Alan Lim. And mm-hmm. so he was the guy that gave me my first power meter and kind of hooked me up with power tap. And that was really a big turning point. That was sort of old dog, new trick kind of thing. Uh, so at that point, I didn't know how many more years I had in me. People have been asking me, how much longer are you going to do this? And I kept saying, one more year, one more year. And I literally said that for about a dozen years, starting from age 30. You know, and I was like, I don't know. I mean, I've I've got a contract on the table. I love doing this. I'm still winning races. So, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, I don't know where the, where the ceiling is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm seeing quarterbacks in the NFL do this until they're, you know, Almost 40. You know, Elway won two Super Bowls. I think he was 37 or 38. Mm-hmm. I was like, if this guy can go out there and just get his ass handed to him every Sunday, I mean, guys taking his knees out and guys tackling him right. that weigh 300 pounds, I'm pretty sure I can race a bike until my late 30s. So that was kind of my little bit of my inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was down doing a race in Mexico uh, and turned on the TV and was listening to an interview of John Elway just winning his first Super Bowl in, in Spanish. It was actually really funny. Um, but uh, again, I was, you know, I'm probably six or seven years younger than that guy. And so I was like, all right, if he can, if he can win the Super Bowl, Uh the pinnacle of his sport at age 37, 38, I can definitely race a bike until about that time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of my inspiration for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, uh, wait, sorry, when were you born? How old are you?
0: Uh, I was born in 66. So So you're four years older than I am. No, wait,
1: math, six years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the last
1: time I saw you race, you, uh, I don't think anybody really raced in last year but you did the crusher and some other gravel stuff Mm -hmm. i think you did steamboat in 2019 i did steamboat in
0: 2019
1: yeah some of those went pretty well crusher you were top five i think right
0: no i was uh i was like top 20 but steamboat i was sixth i was right behind the the Ah. main four guys or whatever i mean was a nice front group of four and then i was in the next group of four about you know seven or eight minutes back so yeah that was a good one but yeah getting back to uh My coach, Alan Lim, you know, he he was my coach that I retired with. So he and I started working together in the early 2000s. Oh, so you worked with Alan for quite a while. And then all the way through, I retired at the end of 07. Um, Okay. So he was really the guy that not only put a power meter on my bike, but explained to me what it meant. Because uh, probably you you may remember the first time he went out. It's like, okay, I'm going up left-hand canyon. It says 220 watts. I have no idea what that means. Is that good? Is that bad? Right. Um, and I, I didn't even understand the relationship between that and body weight and, and, mm-hmm. or anything. Um, I mean, I could look at the heart rate and the next week realized that I was doing same wattage, and a little less heart rate. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm getting fitter mm-hmm. or something. Um, but yeah, he was, you know, Alan is an extremely smart guy and has a lot of real world experience. And so he was a really great guy. Um, and gave me a lot of confidence as I was doing some of those races, uh, in my late thirties, like, uh. Uh, San Dimas or Redlands you know because you spend all winter training it's like I don't really know how my form is I ride out to Carter Lake with the group rides and I just you know just feeling okay and you know you got 40 pounds of clothes on you kind of feel like crap and (laughs) you know I never liked having tights around my legs or whatever just kind of feels constricting it's like I don't know Alan what's you know and he's like go go you know hammer up Flagstaff see how long it takes you get to the top and I come back and He'd look at the numbers like, yeah, you're going to do fine. You're fine. Yeah. You're going to do just fine. Yeah. Unless you double flat in this uphill time trial, there's probably not more than one or two guys that are going to beat you. And I like, oh, okay. Right. And so that gave me a lot of confidence. Um, mm-hmm. Similar to having a sparring partner. Like you said, you knew when you, you know, when you were putting the smack down to JV that you were probably on good form. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, that power meter was that, that, uh, that validation. It's yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, he can reverse engineer this and say, okay, if your weight and let's say you're going to be at sea level, you know, last year you did it in this time, you're, yeah, you're going to, you know, you're going to win this thing basically. And so I was like, oh, okay. Um, not that I lacked a lot of confidence, but it said some of those early season races, you just don't really know. Uh, You just don't have a lot of racing in your belt. And I was usually a guy that took about, you know, 12, 15 races before I really started to Mm. feel like I was on top form. You Mm. know, I I would, I'd maybe be at 90% in in early February or March, something like that. so. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was a real turning point. And, and I think it extended my career a fair bit, uh, because it just, it made me train smarter. You know, prior to that, I was just did a lot of it by feel. Even the heart rate stuff was a little bit, um, kind of shotgun approach, you know? Um, so I, yeah, looking back, I'm not really sure how I did it back in the early nineties. Of course, I was, like, I was just kind of just go out and ride with the guys and we'd race and rest and race and rest. And, and, you know, somehow it, it worked out, but I never really peaked. I didn't have events that I was necessarily peaking for. I just, mm-hmm. we would race all the time, it seemed like. I mean, back, back in the early 90s, we were racing 100 days a year. So, yeah. you know, you just had a, a certain level of fitness that you maintain. And then, like I said, you were just kind of riding that wave. Yeah. Uh, you just go yeah. from one NRC race to the next, to the next. And so And If you got really tired, you'd take a weekend off or whatever. Yeah. But otherwise, it was just like big early season build. Like, exactly. did you guys do training camps a lot? We did a you know, long training camp. I mean, they were like three, four weeks long. Where you know, just be me sitting on those guys, just pummeling each other for, <laughs> for, a hundred miles or whatever. I mean, I yeah. was I was the I was sort of the baby of the team when I joined. I was the thirteenth guy, and I wasn't originally supposed to be on the team. Leonard had had sort of finalized his roster, and then the farm team that I was on, Crest, folded at the end of nineteen ninety. So he kind of gave me the option. Uh, Petty John did. He's like, look, I can support you for another couple of years if you want to ride the Olympics in ninety two, or if you want to turn pro, mm-hmm. I'll find I'll fit you in. Unfortunately, the team was a little full of, of uh, full with GC guys. We had Lexi, Graywall, we had Engelman, and we had Clark Sheehan. So right. I was like, man, right. this is going to be a kind of a full GC room, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. But as fate would have it, you know, Clark got injured. I like think he broke three or four bones that year just doing different things. Alexi was a, a Lexi, you know, <laughs> yeah. good and bad. And then Engelman was kind of the rock. And so I ended up sort of becoming the number two guy uh-huh. uh, behind Engelman just in my very first year. You know, yeah. First year on side I won 13 races. And, and yeah, yeah, just... Made my I didn't want to be the 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 thirteenth guy, you know. I, I wanted to be a yeah. part of the team, and so yeah. Um, but I was pretty unsure of myself. So yeah, training camp I never hit the front. I seriously just sat on the whole time. You know, <laughs> these guys <laughs> are riding way too hard, and I don't want to get dropped. So I'm just going to sit on and just uh, yeah. It's and like, where were you guys camps normally? Santa Rosa. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it can be quite rainy if that was February. Yeah, or January. We, we lucked out. We lucked out. Um, yeah. There were some years. That, yeah, we had nothing but rain. But uh, yeah. the Coors Light years were, were actually pretty good. And yeah. so we would take photos and we would do you know we. Did, yeah. All the normal stuff. It was just, you know, we had full um staff there, so we had, you know, getting massage every day and mechanics and just a nice way for everyone to dial in their second pair of shoes and their spare bike. And I mean we kind of maximized our, our time mm-hmm. out there. So yeah, it was a real pro team. Yep. Yeah. And that I Which mean, is kind of a thing in the past. I don't think guys I don't think any teams do training camps that long. I think they do more multiple of, yes. of ten days and twelve days, but this was literally a month of just being out there. It's a long the, camp. As a single guy, I didn't care. I mean, it was like a month here, a month there, whatever. But there were guys that that had families and kids and everything. And that's it's a long time. But yeah, that's how we did it.
1: And that was such a different era. I mean, just so people understand, if you wouldn't mind outlining what a typical race schedule looked like in one of those years, we had just – it was like a smorgasbord of racing compared to what we've got now. Stage races, one-day races.
0: Yeah, there was always something going on in Texas in March, and it was kind of a, a spinoff, I think, of the original tour of Texas, which was quite popular back in the eighties. But mm-hmm. um, so we had this thing called Beauty the Beast, and just some random you know things to, uh, down in, in Texas that we would usually go to. Um, our schedule was really kind of driven by local beer distributors, and they would they would call corporate and say we want the team to come down here, so they would. They would kind of offset some of our costs to get down there. So we would go to random places like, uh, we did the hotter in hell, which yep. is in which South falls, Texas, I think. And that was, that was later in the summer. Of course, you want to be there in August when it's really, really hot. <laughs> right. Uh, but our season kind of, you know, we would start out with our, our month long training camp, three or four weeks, uh, training camp in February. Mm-hmm. And then we would go right into, I feel like we always did a couple races right there in Santa Rosa, something called the cherry pie road race yes. in Santa Rosa. So, you know, so we'd just go and destroy the local, local competition. Yeah. Um, with all twelve guys or thirteen guys, or whatever, <laughs> and then you know, but the, everything was a build up for the Tour de Pont, uh, or I think in the initial years was the Tour de France and to Tour de Pont, yeah. right? So Which that was, was that May, right? Yes, that yep. was basically our Tour de France or our Grand Tour, for for lack of a better word, because it was ten days long and it was uh, about an hour or so of nightly uh, ESPN coverage. Yeah. So yeah, everything was a build up to that. Um, I mean, we did one year down in Colombia, South America, a, a, you know. 10-day stage race to try to to ramp up. But for the most part, Mm -hmm. you know, between illnesses and crashes and everything, we decided it was better to stay stateside. So we would just kind of cherry-pick events, whether it be Bisbee or something in Texas. To where the Gila used Um, to be a little earlier. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, California, just anywhere it was going to be warm. You know, there's usually – at that point, we'd usually split the squad. So we had the stage race squad and the crit squad. So we might send the crit squad to Florida or something like that. So
1: there was Mammoth stage race right? There was Willamette mm-hmm. in Oregon. We talked about that the other day. That was a, it was a race that had like $5 in prize money, but it was hundred mile road races on these little logging roads you're all right, the time. Right. Super yes. steep
0: climbs and always raining. And yeah, I know we definitely did Willamette because um, yeah. that was an April race. So basically we had a, a total of about a six week stint on the East coast, believe it or not, where I, we would just not be home. I mean, mm-hmm. this was a Colorado based team. I mean, 90% of the guys lived uh, here in Boulder. And so we would start with a big one-day race in Atlanta called the Atlanta Grand Prix. Yep. And then we would head up to start the Tour de Pont, which would be, you know, basically four or five days later. And that went on for 10 days. And then we had a week off and we would go to Pittsburgh. Had a big race there called the Thrift Drug, mm-hmm. which was where Lance yep. <laughs> made us all look pretty human. Um, <laughs> then we had three or four days off and we did this thing called the West Virginia Mountain Classic, which is a big five-day UCI race in West Virginia. Yep. Um, that I actually won in 92. Then we had a few days off and we would start the Philly week. So that would be the Trenton Lancaster yep. and then the, and then the and sort of the, the super bowl, I guess was, yeah. was uh Philly as uh, in terms of the one day races. So that was an entire six week stint yeah. with its stupid amount of prize money. Yep. And yeah, logistically it all kind of laid out because it was all mid Atlantic to, to Eastern seaboard mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of stuff. So we would just ship everything there. You know, we had our full staff out there and all the riders. I mean, nobody went home during that period. Yeah. Because we, we never had more than three or four days, and it was just better to to not try to reacclimate or whatever to the the heat and the humidity and everything. So that was that was the schedule, and that was pretty standard. I mean, that started in '91 for me anyway, and it was that way through about '96. Yeah, because uh, I think that's when DuPont stopped, and then the whole kind of schedule just sort of Slowly. kind of started to disperse a little bit. It wasn't quite as cohesive because yeah. we still had still had I think uh, still the the Philly week, but I think some of the other uh, pieces kind of dispersed. Yeah. So yeah, that, that was that was, an, that was an insane season, and then after that, like you said, we had we'd come back and we had Casper, we had Mammoth, we had Cascade, yep. we had uh, Whaling City, we had Fitchburg. I mean, there was a you know a Bose, six or six Altona. or eight uh, yeah six or eight really big uh, NRC stage races, and and the fitness that we'd gotten from that that yep. swing on the East Coast that kind of just put us even another notch above the average. Yep, uh, guys, Killington. Yeah,
1: so yeah, it yeah. was easy to race 100 days back then. Easy. easy. And now we've got five. Maybe stage races in the U.S. spread out throughout the summer. There's almost nothing at the end of the summer, unless you're. I think Hillington still exists. Maybe.
0: Uh, there's a, something called Green, or Mountain, Green Mountain, which is taking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, I agree. As a coach, man, it's hard to string together a, a, a season, mm-hmm. um, even without COVID, um, that, yeah. that that has any kind of rhyme or reason to it. And I look at you know when USA Cycling prints their their NRC, whether it's the USA Crit Series or their true nrc schedule and it's just it's kind of all over the place and yeah i was like how do you i don't know how do you build a program office? yeah how do you, how you do build you, a program and number right. one how well I mean, more importantly how do you sell sponsorship mm-hmm. and that was where this thing kind of fed each other you know when we had that that core of races a guy like petty john could just step into any office and say look we're on television for you know 10 days during this period and then we've got you know this many media hits from them. i mean these were big events really yeah. well put on by by medalist sports so whether it was the atlanta grand prix or the Mm-hmm. Philly or Pittsburgh, those all had just really good, um, really good crowds, really good um, media impressions. And, and it was just easier to sell the sponsor on this is what we're going to be doing. This is how many events we're going to be at. And this is the number of, of possible people that are going to see it. And now I don't know how you, I don't know how you present any of that. Even though be- ironically, there's more data and more, more ways to capture that. But if you're, your, know, if, if no- your Tour de France is Tour de Gila, no offense, I'd love Tour Gila, but you're going to have 25 yeah. people watching that race. Maybe. It's true. um and that's not good and and, you know kind of the same for joe martin i mean that's Mm -hmm. a maybe a slightly bigger market but not not Mm -hmm. really not compared to philadelphia not compared to atlanta not compared to all the the people that would see the tour de pont right in in those 10 days i mean we were in yeah atlantic city and and i mean you name it i mean some really really let alone
1: like stuff like nevada city right remember that race yes i mean that race i'm sure there were at least ten thousand people watching that live and that was a super cool It was basically a criterion on a 45 degree angle
0: yeah no i i one that raced four times, and one of the years I I won it. OLN was there. I mean, yeah. they they deemed yeah. it as a big enough event. And again, if if you can you know pan the camera back and see eight people deep along yeah. the start finish line, that looks like a big deal. Anyway, mm-hmm. it was a big deal. It was. So yeah, yeah, we had no problem putting. It was more you know for us it was a matter of like can we get enough guys to all these races you know because we like I said we had ten to. to Well, we had 12, 13 riders, and we were generally splitting them between criteriums and stage races. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you, at the end of the year, everyone was pretty gassed because we were just trying to cover. You know, we wanted to go to any big money races, and we also wanted to go anywhere that that Coors Light deemed um, an event worthy of of their sponsorship and and their support. So we were always always kind of, you know, there were times where we needed body doubles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a few more riders. And I just don't see that as being the case right now. It's not even close. I don't know how you try to put together a calendar with eight or 10 riders and say, okay, we're going to be able to, to keep you, you guys busy and going to races again, even without COVID. I, I just don't know. It's just, it's pretty haphazard the schedule. It is. It seems
1: like that's why so many teams are just criterion focused. Now we've got speed week and you can base it off a few other key crits around the country that are still surviving. But, and even things like super week have become, you know, tour of America's dairy which is sort of a, a distilled version of what super week was. All the events are shorter and, I don't know how the specters are and stuff like that. I haven't done any of those races, but Super Week used to be a big deal as well. Right, right. And, I mean, I've done all these events. I've done – not all of them. I've done – I did a a similar program to what you've done. You know, I did Atlanta Grand Prix and Mm -hmm. Lancaster and Trenton. Man, Lancaster was just – I'm sure that race was really good for you. For me, that was like the anti-Colby,
0: that race. Actually, none of those races (laughs) were that good for me, but it was hard to not feel like you were part of – I mean, I did Philly 17 times. Mm -hmm. Wow. I may have missed one race. I mean, I was seven, pro for 17 years. I been mean, yeah. one year that I was just wasn't had the form, didn't have the form or something. But yeah, um, but I was always, you know, you could take your maximum number of guys and there was not a limit. Uh, if there was, it, it never Because they were trying me. to fill the field. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. So... Yeah. And even the Euros, you know, guys like chippo Cipollini would look over and say, this would be a World Cup in Europe. I mean, like just mm-hmm. the, the the half a million people there and the way the course was laid out and going up Maniakwa, well, I was just like, oh, my yeah. God. You know, if we could figure out a way to do six or eight of those throughout the season, then well, we, we would have a real sport. And for a while, we kind
1: of did. We had San Francisco Grand Prix,
0: which was amazing. Was I mean, amazing. they shut down the city right. and we just
1: raced all over the freaking city. Peloton of 140 dudes. Yeah. You're going 60 miles an hour down the hills because it's San Francisco. Right. You're going four miles an hour up the hills. If you're me, you know probably eight. If you're you, which is amazing because those hills are like basically vertical. Yeah, we had uh, Atlanta Grand Prix. We also had Seattle Grand Prix, yeah. which Clark I think won one
0: year. Like that race was and also cr- same thing. They shut down the freaking city. Same for the thing day. with uh, Pittsburgh. We went to the city yeah. called and it was Like. One mile straight up. Uh, yep. It's Mount Washington Street, I think, it had, had the name Washington. But mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a spectacle where you're going over the bridge twice and kind of doing an inner city loop and then going up this, uh, this big climb.
1: And events now, I think in cities like that, it's just too impractical to shut down a, an entire real city for that. I don't know how they pull it off even then, yeah. to be honest, because the city just stops like traffic. They have to have a million policemen and marshals and volunteers to not have a bunch of cars drive out in front of the Peloton somehow when they're doing laps like that
0: so. No, I mean, it's part of it is sponsorship, but I think in some of those cases it was having like the, the local mayor was really into it or even the governor. Yeah. And in, in the case was like a tour of Missouri uh, or that West Virginia race that I mentioned, that was very much, um, had some political yes. component to it. And so when they get behind it, it's just a matter of picking up a phone and
1: make and, it happen. And things get, get done. Yeah. But, uh, agreed. <clears throat> agreed. But for some reason, those phones are not being picked up anymore. And I don't know who greases the wheels behind all that stuff, or if it's just a function of different times, different culture, different too many people, too many cars, perhaps, but there was also a Houston race that we did a couple times. Yes, yes, yeah. I mean, one in almost every city, and same concept in Colorado. Likewise, we used to have a small stage race in most of the ski towns during the summer. There was an Aspen stage race, Crested Butte stage race, Telluride stage race, Copper Mountain. Like, so now we've got these criteriums and business parks on the front range, and I'm really not honestly trying to bash any race promoters mm-hmm. here. Like, race promotion is the hardest job I know of and probably the most thankless job. Absolutely. Most thankless super hard to make a living. I'm sure in most in 99% of all cases, but I mean, we used to have, who didn't want to go to tell you ride in the summer and race your bike, you know, and this is good for ski areas too. It's not like they had a lot going on back then. Mountain biking didn't exist really. Now, of course, you've got the winter park terrain, you know, hawker bike launcher pad, you know, ride your bike to the moon and back upside down kind of thing, which I don't really do or know that much about, but. So it's a whole different business model. But the point
0: being is we still have some cool stuff to do. <laughs> I, guess, well, that's what I, I'm I guess the million dollar question is, are we ever going to get back to that place? Mm. And I hope I'm wrong yeah. with my answer, but I don't think so. Yeah, And I don't know exactly what year it happened. It's probably been 20, 25 years. And I'm sure you remember this as well, because I actually thought it was a joke when I, when I heard about it. The story came out on the news. And I don't remember if it was a male or female, but they sued McDonald's because they got a cup of hot coffee and it spilled on their lap. Yes. And they successfully won that lawsuit. Right. And I mean, it, was, it basically turned this person into a millionaire overnight. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was a total Johnny Cochran kind of operation, I, I guess. But in that mm-hmm. moment, I think everything changed, at least in the United States. Meaning everyone now looked around going, holy crap, if I screw up, I can hold somebody else liable. Yes. It's not my fault. Right. If I do a stupid move, I can, I can probably find someone to blame. I can probably yeah. blame it on the manufacturer of this wheel or yeah. the, the person that made this curb or yes. the person that, that put that bottle can in the, in the gut or whatever. I can always point the finger mm-hmm. and find it to be somebody else's fault. And so insurance costs just went through. And I roof. don't know, again, if that was 20 or 25 years ago, mm-hmm. time flies when you get to be our mm-hmm. age. But that changed everything. Mm. And if you talk to any race promoter, whether it's Barry Lee or Jim Burrell, doesn't matter how big or small, that is probably their number one concern is liability. Hmm. Some guy out there hitting a grate or a manhole or dodging somebody and hitting a curb, yep. he's going to come after them most likely. Yeah, <clears throat> I yeah. mean, I wouldn't and you wouldn't, but I'm talking about the, the masses, right? Uh, the people that are newer to the sport. right? Everybody just thinks that it's somebody else's fault. Interesting. And if you think about the dynamics of an open road race compared to say an NFL football field, Right. You know, how long does it take to certify an NFL football field? You come in, you measure the the goalpost, you make sure there's a net so the no, ball doesn't fly into the stadium. Mm-hmm. Probably takes a couple hours versus a 120 mile road race. It's impossible. I mean, there's so many driveways and entrances and crap on the ground and, and, and seams yeah. between the gutter and the, mm-hmm. the I mean, that's, that's, that's a landmine, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, it's like trying to have an orchestra on a floating device going through whitewater rafts. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's a, it's gonna happen. There's gonna be something go wrong because you just can't control. It's the nature of the sport. It's It's part of what makes the sport beautiful, actually. Right. But if you think about it, it's one of the only sports where we're using somebody else's venue. You know, you watch a mountaintop at at Alpe d'Huez. That was a road that was designed to take people to a ski area. Correct. You know, worlds last year, Alaphilippe comes in and finishes on a racetrack for cars. Yeah. I mean, we don't have any hundred mile open road races that are designed for cycling. We have (laughs) velodromes. And it reminds, I actually saw a video recently, total total vintage video of a 1982 Coors classic stage started at the Capitol in Cheyenne and finished at the Capitol in Denver. They literally, wow. wrote, they rode on I-25. Yeah. And it was an extremely critical day because it was crosswinds as you can imagine. Yeah. yeah in yeah. August and the East Germans put the smack down and Dale Stetna was the beneficiary of that. And he ended up winning that year because the Colombians couldn't ride in the crosswind the uh-huh. way, the way the East Germans and Dale was just in the sweet spot. Nice. Doing what you and I would do. Right. Um, <laughs> And if you think about that, I mean, yeah, that was a long time ago. It was forty years ago. There probably was no frontage road then. No, it was there was just no frontage straight road. highway. I mean, in the yeah. in the footage I saw, it's literally one police escort and then the caravan, and there's trucks and cars whizzing by. I mean, it's kind of a enclosure, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> loosely, um, the loose version of that. Yeah. But can you imagine trying to go from a hundred guys racing Cheyenne. bikes from Cheyenne <laughs> Capital down I-25 <laughs> with or without the frontage road and finishing in downtown Denver? <laughs> right. There's not enough. Police on the in planet. The there's not enough cooperation. There's not. I mean, it just wouldn't happen, right? And it goes to my earlier point of liability, but also just the practicality of you know this country has grown a lot yeah. since you and I first got into cycling, and yes. the roads are more crowded, and there's more people. And like you said, I mean, you'd have to. I can't even imagine how you'd pull that off. Mm. I mean, I just couldn't do it. That reminds me of. And so that you know, to answer the question, I don't think we're ever going to get back to the place where yeah. where I was in the early '90s, where yeah, we just yeah. had a lot of really cool races that all strung together and. And there was a lot of cohesion and open road races because there's just a lot of things working against that Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. So
1: that reminds me of a year I went down to do, I'll call it the tour of Mexico. I think, I don't remember what the title, the actual race was and what year this was, but I remember we got wind of this race. I don't even remember what team I was on, if it was a national team or what, to be honest, but the first stage was supposed to be from Phoenix to like Nogales. Okay. And we got there and the race plan said they were literally just going to take the highway. Like they were trying to do this. Only this had to be, you know, somewhere in the low, mid two thousands. And sure enough, the promoter then realized he couldn't do that. (laughs) So they, yeah. Oops. So they, they spontaneously made a circuit race in a parking lot at South mountain, which was, man, I got there. And everybody was like, oh, this is going to be totally, you know, a bunch of. Crap and the race is going to be really easy and whatever. No big deal. And I went and looked at the course and there was this pretty strong wind and it, it, you've been around the sport long enough. You know that a parking lot criteria can actually be really challenging because yes. they're not real corners. You're cornering around cones. Whoever makes the course probably doesn't know what they're doing. Right, right. And it's really exposed and the surface sucks. And I was, all those things came to fruition. So the first stage was actually quite hard. But then after that, we got transferred on a bus to Nogales. I spent a night in a hotel room in Nogales, which was one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever had. And the nastiest mattress I've ever slept on. And then we rode literally from the highway, uh, like from there, all the way south to the final stage, which was like a circuit race on, this is like Baja area. Mm. There was one stage with a like 2K climb that they found that went up the side of some random little mini volcano. That was the GC day. Everything else was the flattest mm. pancake stage you've ever done. But anyway, it's just funny. That's the same concept. Yeah. And the, I think the promoter just didn't understand that wasn't going to happen. And he had the race and had us all signed up and somehow left it to the last minute to contact the you know Phoenix police department or whatever, right. Right? Arizona state patrol. So, okay. I want to maybe shift gears just half a degree and continue the theme of what we've been talking about, which is the changing of the sport in the U S and how the landscape has changed and meaning the types of events we have to race, but also more cars, more cyclists, more people in general. And I think you synopsized it perfectly a few minutes ago when you said that basically what we're doing, this is the only sport in the world where we are really using an infrastructure that's not designed for our sport. We don't have a playing field for our sport. The playing field for our sport would technically be a mount bike trail that was purpose-built or a velodrome. Or, a velodrome. or right. occasionally we do have training criterium courses that are made. There's one, um, there are a couple near velodromes around the US that have been made. There's one in T-Town That's there and people do training crits on that course all the time. So we have a handful of those. You could also use a dual purpose, like an auto racing track for a crit. We used to do the one, what was the one called? that was North of Denver. Mead. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We used to
0: have a good training crit out there. I rode out there a bunch of times and
1: smashed myself. And 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 The cross would
0: probably fit in that category too. That's a a course made specifically for that event. Yeah.
1: Unless you're in Austin and you (laughs) run over the roots of an endangered tree and then you run into all kinds of problems. But (laughs) So road racing is this, it's this exact scenario where we're using an infrastructure that was designed for vehicular travel, not for cycling. And there are two problems with that. And this is really part of what inspired the last podcast I did where I titled it controversially group rides are dead. And here's why. And I will acknowledge that I threw out a lot of negatives on group rides there. And there are quite a few positives and I didn't quite see The other side of that coin in time for that podcast, which shame on me because shame on you. My whole MO is to, I really try to not look at things as good or bad. I try not to demonize or glorify anything. I like to point out sides of things and let people make their own decision. Everything's a spectrum. You know, you can be really, really flexible, but you can be too flexible. You can be really really strong. you can be too strong. Most of us benefit from being somewhere in the middle of that spectrum to a degree and figure out where you are as an example. So when I kind of bashed group rides, I did so because I think my perspective was an emotional one where I was trying to illustrate to people that I think a lot of people just get on their bikes and do what they've been doing for 10, 20, 30 years. And they think things are the same and they're not either. They're too stupid to recognize that things have changed drastically, but most people aren't too stupid to do that. They're just turning a blind eye towards that fact because they so desperately are attached to their group ride experience. And again, to use our local ride, the bus stop ride, as an example, this is the one to refresh my audience's memory is it leaves on a highway that goes North of town at 5 PM. And it's just an absolute recipe for disaster. If I was a coach now, and I was going to write a prescription for the worst group ride recipe possible, it would literally be the bus stop ride. And I know not everyone lives in Boulder and most people don't care, but the point being is there are many places in the U S and arguably in other parts of the world where the same formula still is happening. And there are these old, old school diehard cyclists who are trapped in 1984, who just won't let it go. And they keep doing these same rides and I'm being pretty harsh here, but I'm also doing that in fully aware of the fact that I'm sitting here with one of those riders who's been around in the sport as long as I have much longer than I have. And you've got a wealth of experience in the sport on various different levels and you got paid to ride your bike for many, many years and you've attended all these rides and you grew up doing these rides. So I'd like to talk about your thoughts on this and also unpack some of the positives that are, that go into group rides. I mean, obviously there are things you can gain from doing a group ride. There are positive benefits to riding in a group.
0: Yeah. And I mean, as a coach, I, I struggle with that as well. Um, prescribing somebody to do a group ride because I, 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 I do appreciate the physiological benefits to it and, you know, if you're going out and doing sweet spot training, you know, three days a week or, you know, threshold work or whatever, your legs can get a little stagnant, you know, and that oscillation and that constant speed changing that you experience in a group I think is really pretty valuable, especially, you know, gearing up for a race where you're going to be doing a lot of those same types of things. It's just a different energy system completely. Yep. Um, and for me going back to my, my days as a professional, sometimes I just didn't have the bandwidth to spend five or six hours on the saddle with two or three other guys or by myself, but man, the time just flies and the miles fly when you're getting sucked along by 25 or 30 guys. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and there's also a speed component to that. I mean, you ca- catch a tailwind and all of a sudden you're going, you know, 38 miles an hour. and It's like, oh, this is good speed work, you know? Right. So, I do see a benefit, and, and as a coach, I, st- I do still um, occasionally prescribe group rides if a person is maybe not able to do races for a, a, an extended period of time. Um, talking specifically about the bus stop ride, I mean, it, it is famous, and, and when I first moved here in the mid-'80s, it, it, for me, it was a, a chance to go – on Tuesdays and Thursdays and, and test my medal against some of the best guys in the world. I mean mm-hmm. literally two of the front stage winners have been on the bust out ride. Totally. Um and out men for their for, you know, world tour guys have been on the bust out ride. And so for me that was very, very cool as a as a young uh amateur guy trying to trying to mm-hmm. break through. I don't think it has the same mystique now. I mean I, I can remember doing a a guy from Sports Illustrated actually showed up in the parking lot and, and wanted to talk to us and did a story about the bus out ride way back in the you know, early 90s. Mm-hmm. So it certainly has uh, you know a bit of a following and certainly a mystique and it's, it's kind of known, it's synonymous with Boulder and, and the fact that anybody can go jump in this thing and there's no waivers to sign and nobody's in charge and that's both good and bad. Right. So... Obviously times have changed and you know, those roads that, I mean, it's literally the same route that, that it has been for the last 30, 40 years, but those roads are busier now. And there's a lot more people out there, a lot more hazards and, mm-hmm. you know, and the group goes faster than it did 30 years ago. I mean, let's face it. Everyone's riding aero bars and arrow wheels and this and that. Yeah. And so yeah. I mean, when crashes do happen on that ride, they're, they're pretty, uh, pretty detrimental. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so I would be cautious to, to prescribe that particular ride to somebody because I know how aggressive it can be. I mean, it, it can yeah. be, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the real deal. I,
1: that's my perspective. On, and well, and to go back to your comment about liability. Right. I mean, we're coaches and, you know, I've learned a lot from other coaches that have coached me on how to coach. And one of the cautionary tales that Jim Miller gave me is he told me this point blank years ago, and I'll just say it out loud. He said, when you write writing programs for riders, never give direct route recommendations because if you tell someone to go ride up Flagstaff and then they come down Flagstaff and you told them to do that and they crash on a corner, that's – the McDonald's coffee. That's the McDonald's yeah. coffee. Exactly. And and I and I don't think Jim is a very skeptical guy. I, I mean, he worked at USAC for a million years, so I'm sure he's seen a million lawsuits. Right. Uh, USAC gets the crap suit out of him all the time. And so I get it. On the other hand, it's like, man, you know – there are times when you want to, when, especially for someone I'm working with locally, and I know the terrain so well, I have a specific effort in mind. I want to give them that prescription. Like, man, the best road for this effort is left-hand Canyon right now. That's what we want. I don't want you to go up Sunshine Canyon, which is just to illustrate the point, left-hands have steady grade of maybe three, three and a half percent for a long time. Sunshine's like eight percent Zero downhill 12%. Yeah. yeah, 30 second downhill. It's like, so you're not going to get a steady effort done on that road. So when you're really thinking about how to prescribe workouts for athletes, if you have the advantage of local knowledge of their terrain, you can visualize how that, that effort is going to impact the rider much more. And also then when, when you know that terrain and rider goes out and you give them a specific ride, like a steady zone two ride or a steady 30 minute zone three or something, and they pick the wrong terrain, then you can dissect it with them and say, well, okay, we can see where your effort didn't go optimally here because you went on this rolling climb. What I want is steady power. I want steady lactate. I want to burn in the muscle for a long period of time as an example, you know? So that's one hurdle, but Scott, if you wouldn't mind unpacking, I mean, what are some of the lessons you can remember that were good things you took away from group rides? I know when I went on the bus stop ride, I learned lots of things. Um, In particular, I remember one time, Mike Carter actually, told me that I was rocking my bike way too much when I was out of the saddle and it looked sketchy. And I was 16 and I already knew everything. So I told Carter to go take a hike, (laughs) which looking back on it is pretty funny. But, you know, I'm sure you had some moments like that where you got to learn things. Were people – was there a boss? Was there a jefe or were there respected
0: riders that you remember learning lessons from? I remember Roy Nickman being kind of the boss for the first couple summers that I was, I think it was part of his, he would go out and do a hard training ride and then finish it up with, with the bus stop ride. It seemed like more often than not. Mm -hmm. And when he was on, he was on the ride, you know, he just commanded everyone's respect. He was either wearing a Levi's Raleigh Jersey or something that was, that was, uh, um, or lobby Claire or whatever. I mean, something that obviously indicated he was paid to ride. Yeah. And and those guys just stood out. I mean, just wow, his Jersey matches his bike. (laughs) He says, he's actually a pro. Um, And, and he was just a well-known guy uh, around Boulder. And so if he said, we're slowing down for this stop sign, because I can see Johnny Law over there, then yep. we would all slow down. Yep. Um, And put a foot down or whatever, because he didn't want to stand there for 10 minutes and. and
1: get a lecture and get a lecture. We're right,
0: right. So. Yeah. Alan McCormick was also kind of that guy. Um, hmm. Not quite as. as uh Gregarious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, Al's a quiet guy. But he but he sort of you know he had a different way of 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 kind of impacting the, the ride um you know do as i do as i say mm. uh, or do as i do, do not as i, I say yeah. yeah um but Lead both by you example. Know, yeah those guys um definitely come to mind as just Again, if you didn't know any better, and, and I was a teenager at the 18, 19 years old, I mean, I just looked up to these guys and it's like, okay, I'm just going to do what they're doing. So if they're going to, mm-hmm. if they're going to roll through in this group of six, I'm going to roll through. If they're, uh, you know, if they're stopping at the stop sign, I'm going to stop at the stop sign. Mm-hmm. So there was just a respect, I think. And, and everyone just kind of looked up to them and, and, you know, and they could, there was, those were the guys that could raise their hands, say, hey, I'm going to change the route and we're going to go this way, which didn't happen very often, but, uh.
1: But if they did, everyone yeah. would
0: go along with it. And they were also the guys that if somebody did really something stupid, like let's say they jumped all the way across the double yellow to attack because they didn't want anyone on their wheel, I mean, they would get berated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether whether it was a soft spoken pro or uh, or a guy that was maybe a little more outspoken, they would get uh, they would get you know scolded and sent to the back, and and you didn't see that guy do that for a number of weeks after that. So right, um, and unfortunately, I don't think we have that anymore. Um, from, from what I can tell, it's just, it's way more of a free for all now. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the few times that I have been, you know, there's, I did that ride quite a few times back in the day. And I can remember getting pulled over by, by Johnny, the law, usually in, in hygiene. The first thing he'd say was who's in charge here, you know, (laughs) and then everyone just, even the cop knew. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And of course no one's raising their hand. Everyone's just, you know, staring at their, their front hubs or whatever. And, um, yeah. And so nobody wants to be in charge, you know, and, and no one's going to point to Roy and say, oh, he's the, he's the hefe. He's <laughs> the guy that, that tells us when we were screwing up, but, right. um, but that had to do more, more with liability really than, than yeah. on road respect. But yeah, um, yeah, that guy just doesn't exist right now, at least not in this town. Mm. I don't think because, you know, part of it is those guys don't want to risk, you know, if you're a world tour guy, if you're Alex Howes, you're training yeah. for the Giro or something, you don't want to get taken out by, some CU kid, you know, who's just overzealous to be, you know, riding next to an EF guy. Totally. Um, and I think maybe that component just wasn't in play, you know, back when, um, back in the day. I mean, obviously pros were, were well paid back then, but I think, yeah, you know, there's just more at risk now.
1: There's more risk, but also I think we're more we're more safety conscious. I mean, people didn't used to race with helmets either. Now it's like.
0: True. No I mean, yeah, I used to do the bus driver ride without a helmet. Yeah, yeah of course. No why, I just, we
1: all did. Yeah. It's just what you did. Right. You didn't know any different, right? We used to let our kids run around in our neighborhoods now. I used to eat. Now dirt. you put them on a I leash. I used to drink
0: out of a garden hose. Right. <laughs>
1: nice. <Yes>. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that um, there can be some powerful lessons that we can learn from a good group ride with some structure. There's obviously a balance there. Uh, but man, I. I do remember people telling me what to do. I remember I, when I first started racing, uh, there was a bike shop here in Boulder called the high wheeler and I was on their club. That was my first club ever that I joined. And we had Tuesday and Thursday training rides. We would ride out East towards Erie. Mm -hmm. We'd cruise along and do a little pace line. The guys were teaching me how to pull through, not too hard, keep the pace going, work together. You know, all the things that you hear you know, Damien Shanks, yell at you when you're in cyclocross race sarcastically. Right. And, and those were really valuable lessons. We had a couple of town limit sprints that I would do, you know, and guys would light me up and these were cat four racers, but right, I was right. a 16 year old kid who weighed you know 95 pounds like you. And, but I just love the sport and want to learn as much as I could. Had to figure out things like when to shift gears in advance and all the basics, how fall, how to closely to follow the wheel and, and bits and pieces like that, how to change a flat tire and, and just little bits of advice you didn't know um, you know, to wear booties on cold days. That was something that I struggled with as a junior. Didn't like those shoe covers mm-hmm. on my shoes. That's a yucky feeling, but.
0: And unfortunately you don't learn any
1: of that stuff riding Swift. You, you don't, you really don't. Yeah. Or riding by yourself, even right. outdoors or with one other person who got into sport at the same age as you. So there's this, uh, just like everything, there's a spectrum of benefit you can get from riding in a group. But when a group gets, I think fundamentally, the problem is <clears throat> that when a group gets about, 25 riders or more and it's competitive or slightly competitive in nature. The problem is the riders who are racers transition and they switch into their reptile brain and they think they're in a peloton. Right. And the fact is you're not in a peloton. You are on open roads. And when I see people doing things like moving up in a group ride, (laughs) especially a group ride that's ostensibly in a two by two format. Right. Which even a big group two by two format is really problematic for traffic. Yeah. You, know, you have 40 people riding or 80 people riding two by two. So you've got a group of 40, even if it's a tidy two by two, which it rarely is. Right. And you're on a single, a single lane road, meaning one direction of traffic each way. And a car comes to pass you and they have to swing out to the other lane to pass 40 people is a solid, I'd say, depending on the speed of the group and the speed of the road, it's probably 30, 40 seconds of the car being basically at least partially in the oncoming lane. And on a rolling country road, That's hard to find that much time when there's not going to be an oncoming car or when you have clear line of sight. So what happens over and over again with these rides, and I'm only talking about an 80-person group ride. We have rides here that happen that, you know, the Saturday rides still get to be well over 100 people sometimes. What happens is the car starts to pass the group. Another car comes in the oncoming lane. The car has to brake and then basically turn right into the group and split the group. And this is clearly not a good scenario. And I, I went on a couple of group rides in 2018 and I stopped meaning in yeah, the yeah. ride, I actually turned around and went the other way because I saw this happen a couple of times. It was like, I mean, there's multiple levels where I got to this point where I decided this was a bad idea for me to continue with the group. One is I didn't want to participate in a group that was doing this to traffic. I didn't want like, to lead be by example. It, yeah, I didn't want to be a part of it. Part of the problem. But the second problem <clears> is I'm a coach. I make my living in this sport. So same thing. It comes back to liability. Yeah. I don't coach 99.9% of the riders on that ride. And the chances of my rider falling down or having an incident or getting hit are very slim, but how liability works at my understanding, full disclaimer, not a lawyer, but basically <laughs> the problem is that people get backed in the corner and they've yeah. got nowhere to go. And this comes down in part to our medical system being broken as F. So someone goes to the hospital for three days, they got 35 K worth of hospital bills, and their insurance runs out or they let it lapse or right, it right. hits max or whatever. Or maybe they got a hundred K where the hospital bills, they got nowhere to go. They have to point the finger at the person who left the beer bottle in the road or the guy who designed the curb. Yeah. Or at least that's how they feel. Right. And they're back, they're back into a corner. They got one choice. They find someone to blame. They go after the legal system. It makes the problem worse. Everybody is just fighting for themselves at that point. And it's, it's ugly. So, so I, but also the entire experience of the ride. Like I'm willing to be a chef. I'm willing to be a father in the Peloton. I feel that I'm qualified in most Pelotons to do this. And, but I wasn't able to actualize it in that case. In spite of the fact that before the ride (laughs) left, we talked to the riders and we kind of discussed how organized it was going to be and how we wanted to ride two by two. And there may be times where we call out single file, but here we are and there's riders. It's just to use a, Outdated terms. It's freaking cowboys and Indians, man. There's people yeah. everywhere. And I don't want to be a part of that. It stresses me out. That's not why I'm what I'm doing on my Sunday. I work in this sport all week long. Last thing I want to do is go on a group ride. This stresses the crap out of me all week, and I'm and I'm hurting cats and I'm trying to watch out for people. who are going to crash.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, it just kind of fuels the fire of, of animosity between motorists and, and cyclists. When when you know it I, really and I, does, I, right? And, and I, I mean, if I were a guy in a car driving behind yeah. that, I'd be you know, it's like really, <laughs> you uh, know, yeah. You know, <laughs> what are you idiots doing? I, I even know what they're doing. And I'd still be pretty appalled. Exactly. You know? um, and I mean. It's I, just a selfish
1: myopic mentality we get into. That's yeah. the Peloton. That's what a Peloton is, right? Yep. You're just focused on the goal of whatever's happening the next climb, the next corner, the next crosswind. You're thinking about saving your legs for the little climb, you know, where everybody's going to go whip out their junk and see how fast they can go. And, and, you know, and you're not looking in the rearview mirror to see when their car's coming.
0: I mean, I, I think there's a solution, but I, it's a complicated one and it, and it would be combining a number of the components that we've talked about you know in the last hour or so and that's you know group rides need to be smaller they need to have somebody in charge but they also need to be in some sort of a closed environment you know we ideally we we need to have a training facility whether it's a two mile loop or a three mile loop or something and yeah uh, and that just requires you know a much bigger yeah an infrastructure that that we don't have that almost no city has i mean there are a few like you said t-town i know has one i've actually been on that right um And I'm sure that gets mind-numbingly boring after a couple of summers. But this is your sport. If you're a coach and you've got you know ten or twelve disciples, twenty people, whatever, that's a great venue or something similar to that, where you you're not looking over your shoulder, um, getting buzzed by cars. You're not you know. You don't have roadkill to deal with. You don't have Johnny Law to deal with. It's just you can focus on mm-hmm. on again. Where's the wind coming from? Where do you need to be flanked off to here? Mm-hmm. Um, let's practice a lead out. I mean, there's a million things you could do if you totally. have, if you had that kind of facility. Yeah. And we don't, and so unfortunately, you know, the default is let's meet at the fun and stuff and go hammer yeah. for eighty miles up to Fort Collins or whatever and just wreck havoc on on local roads roadways that were not really designed for for that yeah. purpose. So yeah. 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 That's the, that's the thing. I think that's the key
1: point. It wasn't designed for that. And, you know, I had a couple of people give me, I've had a lot of feedback from my last episode on this topic and that's been great. I really appreciate everyone's feedback. Some of it's been good. Some of it's been not so good. And we've, I've had some interesting discussions with some of my listeners and some of them pointed out that a few people have pointed out that, you know, as taxpayers, we have a right to use this road and man, I'll tell you, For 35 years, I've been firmly on the side of yes, hell yes, we do. Right. Until recently, and that perspective has started to change. um, Where it's like, man, this doesn't make sense when you add it up. Like, I'm not saying that no one should ride their bikes on the road. I'm not saying that. But I will say that taxpayers, roads are, they're an infrastructure made for cars. And bike paths are an infrastructure made for bikes. And we make a compromise solution when we add a breakdown lane that bikes ride in. Or a bike lane. And that's happened in many roads in Boulder County. And those rides have become more rideable. Those right. roads have become more rideable since that has happened. There, For a number of years, 75th was literally called I Hate Bikers Road. Yeah. For like six years, I didn't ride on the road at all because there was no shoulder. And it was you were guaranteed to get hassled there. Yeah. Why? Because it was way overridden. This is a road from the town of Hygiene to Boulder that people ride regularly. Like you can go out there on any given weekday and there are people steady stream of cyclists all day long. That's how many riders we have here. Yeah. So, but the infrastructure wasn't made for cycle for cyclists. It was in some cases adapted to allow cycling. And the problem is we emulate at the highest level, like, okay, track racers, world championships happens on a velodrome. How do you train for track? You go to your local velodrome. If you have one BMX, same thing, right? Cyclocross, same thing. Mountain bike, same thing, but road, Our, our high end of the sport, our, our events that we emulate the most, the Tour de France, the Olympic road race, the world road race championships, the classics, those happen on roads that are closed down 100% specifically for the event on the day. We do not have that luxury when we're training, unless you're talking about training on a dedicated criterium or road race course. We don't have it. I mean, there's actually a road race course that was paved in Moscow near the velodrome that was like, they had worlds there. I don't remember how long the loop was. We never got to ride it because we went there for the world cup in January and it was like, you know, negative six. Um, so we rode rollers and yeah. rode the velodrome,
0: but you can make a road race course and there are places that have them. There's a few in Asia, I think. Where yeah. They, yeah. For specifically sure. for either worlds or Olympics or whatever. Yeah. yeah they, they they basically
1: just made a, a loop. I mean, can you imagine? <clears throat> and there actually, there was a super cool one in Sydney near the velodrome in the forest an amazing circuit race course it was probably 4k long and we would go train there on our road bikes before we did our afternoon track sessions i mean this can happen it's a thing that exists in real life just not in yeah. the u.s and it comes down to your local muni- municipality and
0: i feel like we're kind of at the breaking point where it needs to happen because, i agree you know I even agree. riding just by yourself or with one person i mean i now have blinky lights on i've always got a helmet and i still don't feel that we've safe. got garmin making computers that are like auto alert yeah. i mean This is not a universe we should be in. You know, just like I
1: rode recently with a friend of mine who said, I carry a gun when I ride at home in Alaska. And I was Mm -hmm. like, well, okay, if you're going to fight a grizzly bear, that's one thing. (laughs) But his inference was he might carry one here. And I'm going, that
0: is not the solution. This is what I'm thinking. Because uh, unfortunately you might end up using it and then you're going to jail. Right. You know? I mean, that's why I would never have I I don't own a gun. I would never carry one because I would probably use it when the I, guy when the guy buzzes me and throws a beer can at me. Yeah. I mean, gonna, you look at the statistics. Yeah. Yeah. Guns so. that are owned and loaded get used. Right. So, and right? I don't, yeah, I don't really want to go to jail. So me neither. Um, I,
1: there are many other ways I'd rather spend my time. So it's. I don't. Yeah, I think we can agree. We don't know what the solution is. Ideally, but in the short term, it seems like you're saying, barring us making a 12k road loop in Boulder, or and and I don't want to just keep this conversation focused on Colorado. A good percentage of my listeners certainly live here, but this is a theme that happens all over the U.S., I think, and even in other parts of the world. So that's the bigger picture. This isn't just here. We are definitely getting – we are definitely experiencing an accelerated ratio of cars and bikes on the roads, and that is changing our sport. And that's why more and more people – I hear this all the time. More people buying gravel bikes, they're just sick of getting passed by cars. So that's the thing. But that aside, I I think you've made up some – you brought up some great points which is ride group rides should be smaller. They ought to have a ride leader or maybe some ride leaders who can direct and herd the cats and remind people when they forget and they start to drift out or they start to move up before the climb or they start to, you know, make other poor decisions, remind them to stop at a stop sign, remind them that they are representing all cyclists and that we are our own worst enemies and that fundamentally tribalistic thinking can be expanded to all levels, but really whenever we think that way, which is us versus them, I'm a cyclist. Those people are are car drivers. Those people are people who drive cars and are polluting the environment and would rather be in an air conditioned box than experiencing the world. Look how enlightened and free I am because I get to ride a bike. I mean, come on. Like cycling is just as dirty of a sport environmentally as any other sport. We all fly around on airplanes to go to bike races. We all drive our cars 50 miles to go to road races to do an optional activity, you know, most of the time, we're not living these lives that are really that green and environmental. I'll just say it. Like, yeah, there are exceptions. There are people who only own bikes. And there are people who, like like Josh, the coffee ride guy. He literally delivers his coffee on his bike every Thursday year round, regardless of weather. That's cool. The guy's throwing down and, you know, he's doing something that in his own way sweeps his own doorstep and makes the world a better That's place. That's a pretty small footprint. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And, I mean, he delivers coffee. The guy's virtually a saint. <laughs> but – what could be better? What could be better? <laughs> so, you know, we do have a local ride here that leaves on, I think, well, pre-COVID days. It used to be on Tuesdays. It was called Turned Up Tuesdays. I won't name the manufacturer who sponsors this ride just out of respect for them. But this is a this is a model that I recommend. I, I think I outlined this on the other pod, but I'm just going to go quick overview anyway. If 80 people show up, the ride is broken into three groups.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And before the ride everybody gets a speech about where the ride's going and there's a defined fast section. So there's a warm up, and then there's a, from this stop sign, once you stop at the stop sign, then you go and it's full gas from there, turn right on this road, turn left on this one, watch out for the stop sign here, et cetera, until we get to this mailbox and then we're done. But when you get to the starting point, the ride is broken up into A, B, and C groups. And you send the C out first. This is handicap style riding. Oh, I see. The riders self-select. So you've got three groups of 18 on the road or whatever it ends up being. And it's much more manageable. And then as the, the B group starts to catch the C group and they disintegrate, then the, the stronger of those two groups form the leading group on the road. But then some A riders might punch their way through. So the, the whole oh. thing sort of expands and contracts and right, right. is a little bit more organic, but it allows the A riders to really go throw down instead of just dumping the yeah. C riders at 5K in and then they're miserable and they don't learn anything and they have to ride by themselves. The B riders get to be chasing the A's for a while. It, so it works really well. It's you a good see format. It's yeah. a great format because it solves a lot of problems. It keeps the group smaller. lets everybody get their niggles out but also it's organized and it has some, some leadership. And I think that's key. And this ride, because it is led by a local, uh, industry manufacturer, they have people who are employees at the shop who guide the ride and they will disinvite people from the ride. And if the people show up anyway, then the ride will stop. It's that simple. They have that control over it. It's their ride. It's, it's, it's not that it's an invite ride. It's not hoity toity or elitist at all. It's the opposite. Right, right right? It's, invited, it's inviting, it's inclusive. It. It. The purpose of the ride is to teach people to go ride fast and they'll teach anyone, but there's also got to be some organization and some direction. So I think that's an actionable solution that hopefully more people could take the reins on. And I would go so far as to throw out an onus and say, if you are a, a person who's been in the sport for more than 10 or 15 years and you understand how pace lines work, you understand the local roads around your area, your neighborhood, your locality, and you are attending group rides, be a boss. Don't, don't be a dick. Don't bitch people out. That's not the objective. The objective is to guide people, to teach them, to herd the cats a little bit, to take on responsibility as a mentor for the sport, teach young riders how to pace, line, how to pull through in a pace line without punching the living crap out of it or slowing down too much.
0: Yeah. That's one of the unique components of, of group riding, especially here in Boulder is how transient it is. You know, you might have out of towners for two or three weeks that you're never going to see again, but it's a completely different riding style if they're from say New Jersey or the new England area, or even California, you know, their fitness level might be completely different than, than that of the local people. So
1: especially if they're coming to altitude, right? So it's,
0: it is really important. I think number one, to, to know the route or to have the, the route described to you prior to it. And like you said, kind of self-select what group you want to be in and mm-hmm. just have a little bit more um, construction, you know, leading into it. So it's not just this free for all, which is, you know, that's kind of the the nuances of, of a group ride. And that's what draws some people to and The fact that it is just a free for all, but yep. I think having some structure like that is super critical. Yeah. Um, and just kind of keeps people a little more focused because let's face it, when, 25 guys show up for a group ride, they've got 25 different objectives. You know, one guy's like, oh, I'm doing tempo today. I'm just going to kind of noodle off the back and I'll just do my tempo. And this guy's, I got to do sprint workout. So I'm going to be lighting it up every 30 seconds. Oh, great. Right, right. Um, I just need to get speed work. Uh, I just need saddle time. And so it's like, that's a lot of different. Uh, well, that's of, a good point. A lot, lot of different agendas. And, you know, if you know, what the recipe is for the day, if, if a ride leader says, this is what we're doing, then it kind of makes your own objective secondary. It's like, Hey, look, yes. you know, we're going to ride out as a group. We're going to go two by two at this section. We're going to punch it, but then we're going to cool down. And warm up.
1: That's an so. excellent point. I think that part of the friction caused in group rides is people going in with their own selfish agendas. Right.
0: My coach said, I got to co- do, yeah, you know, if I, I coach, can't, I can't go over 250 Watts. Right. It's like, well, you shouldn't be here. You
1: though. should not be here. That's the <laughs> yeah. actionable takeaway. If you have to do five by five at VO2 and you're trying to do it in a group
0: because But that's, that's, you know,
1: let's be honest. That's not going to work in that format. Not effectively. It just doesn't work. So if you're trying to hide from your VO2 workout and make it easier by being in a group, you're approaching it wrong. Go to the Canyon, go to this County road, go out there and race a cow. That's what your objective is for that day. It's a hard day. Go get your work done. If you want to have a ride program, that's a little bit flexible and can be defined by what the group is doing and is a bit organic. That's the time to show up for a group ride. If you want to learn and you're new to the sport and you
0: want to figure out how to do a pace line you know this group ride has pace lines that's the time to show up to a group ride right yeah and i think it's a big a big issue cuz so many guys want to have their cake and eat it too you know they yes. want to do the group ride but they also want to do what their coach told them to do and so they're going to try to hybrid that somehow and and you know do a little bit of the group thing and sort of participate but not really listen to what the ride leader's saying you know, yeah. potentially but then they're going to you know at some point they're going to throw down there they're uh, two by 20s or something, and, and that can be pretty disruptive. So,
1: it can be really disruptive, or it just doesn't go with the flow of the group, or people on the group aren't going to understand what you're doing. And right. suddenly, you're trying to do a 20 minute threshold interval, and some guy pulls through in front of you. Right. So, somebody
0: <laughs> thinks you're baiting them, basically. Yeah. Because you're, Which you you're, are you're in a group. <laughs> you are. Right. It's just the, the mouse and the cat kind of yeah. things. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. It just doesn't make sense. So, I explain this paradigm to my athletes quite frequently. It's like, okay, if you want to go do a group ride, you are giving up the precise structure that we want you to have for that day's training. And that's okay if we agree that that's what's going to happen on that day. Yeah. But on the days where we want to control load precisely, we want to really achieve a certain objective, a certain number of minutes in a time in a particular zone, you know, we want to get you to 18 minutes of proper VO2 work or or 25 minutes of it or whatever we're doing, you know, or 45 minutes of tempo. A group ride's not the situation to do that. Now if you want to roll out with a group ride for an hour and then peel off and go to the canyon and do your own thing, that can work. There can be compromises, but the more structure you have and are trying to achieve for the day, the the less likely it is a group will fill that need. So there's a balance there, and I think people need to recognize that.
0: Yeah, and I and I do think a lot of athletes struggle with that because you know part of cycling is the social component to it, and that's the 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 lure of group rides. Meanwhile, like I said, they're paying a coach or they're part of a service where they're being kind of told what to do on a daily basis, and they want yep. to, they want to achieve their objective. But to me, it's it's finding that balance, just saying, hey, coach, one day a week, I want to just have a a kitchen sink kind of ride. Like yeah. I can ride as hard or as easy as I want is because it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be zone one. It's going to be zone five. Cause that's the nature of group rides. I mean, they're, yes. they're oscillating all over the place, but you're not going to get that steady state for two by 20 or three by 60 or whatever it might be. Right. Um, because right. it's, there's just too much too too dynamic. Most group rides are. So, Agreed. um, I think that, you know, if I were an athlete being coached right now, I would just have that kind of, I would throw that out there and just say, look, yeah. give me one day every other week or whatever, where I can just go and just throw down if I want to or just sit yeah. back and yap with the guys at the back of the group or, or whatever. Yeah.
1: On my safely organized pared yes. down yes. group ride, yeah. On my two by two Good. group ride. Right. Right. Yeah. With the Good. Police, with the police escort. Yeah. I agree. I think um also I want to just rewind quickly to one comment you made earlier, which is you mentioned that when you started to figure out when you first got a power meter you noticed a very basic relationship, which was you would do the same ride a couple weeks in a row and you would get the same power with a lower heart rate. And for all the discussion about data and all the Tim Cusick WK05 and all the crazy software we out there, which can do all this amazing stuff, training is fundamentally about one thing. It's about making more Watts per heartbeat. It's shifting that curve. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. And if you're not in touch with how that curve – tracking that curve can be quite challenging, but in a way that's meaningful, I'll say. You
0: got to have a lot of data. You got to have a lot of accurate data. But that said, that's the goal. That's really it. Yeah, and I was lucky that I was starting out from almost ground zero. I mean it was very early season. So I was seeing I was seeing um, adaptation almost right away. Like mm-hmm. I said, I was seeing a, a change relationship between power and heart rate almost right away, whereas in the middle of the season it probably wouldn't have been – quite so uh, dramatic but this was like you know november december and i'd come off a long off season so i was pretty out of shape and so within 10 days or two weeks or whatever i was starting to see that relationship improve yeah uh, so yeah intuitively i was like well that's got to be good right right <laughs> I'm doing, doing same watts and less heart rate so either that's i'm yeah, yeah yeah um yeah but yeah that was uh like i said a turning point for me and and having it kind of laid out and explained to me by somebody as as wise as alan lynn was was uh really, really instrumental in in extending my career, I think, um, into my early forties. Yeah. Yeah. Alan
1: was my first official podcast guest and, uh, he coached me as well. A couple of years in there, including the Olympic year 04. So yeah, smart dude. Wealth of knowledge. He really is. Yeah. Cool. And not afraid to share it. Agreed. Awesome. Well, let's wrap up Scott by telling us a little bit about your coaching business. Um, tell us where people can find out about you, who are you coaching for? What's Maybe you can just briefly describe your coaching philosophy. What do you? How do you tell people what to do, man?
0: You know, that's a great question. And, and certainly it comes up when I'm interviewing or being interviewed by a potential um, athlete. And it's actually really, really simple. I feel that most North American athletes do not train hard enough on their hard days and they do not ride easy enough on their easy days. And that might sound extremely elementary and basic, but it's one of the hardest things I do as a coach is to hold people back. <clears throat> this whole, you know, no pain, no gain kind of thing Mm. gets ingrained in people and they don't want to go out on a, on a ride and get passed by somebody, you know, and again, it's the the cat and the mouse kind of thing, even if they're, you know, so the idea of staying within a specific range, you know, they always want to impress the coach by like, Oh, check it out. I I did 10 Watts over. It's like, no, that's actually not what I wanted you to do. (laughs) So, um, right. And they learn pretty quickly that, that I mean business. So I want them to literally ride zone one for an hour and a half and not get their heart rate or their, their Watts over a certain yep. range on their easy day. And it's like, trust me, this seems really easy and kind of waste your time, but I'm going to crush you the next two or three days. And you're going to want to be that fresh. Yeah. So take advantage of these rest days. And if I tell you to take one day completely off, you should probably take it. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's no extra credit here. Um, mm-hmm. and so again, that's a, it's a really hard thing for some people to a cycle a break, you know, they're like, well, you said to do six intervals. So wouldn't eight be even better? Because I was feeling really good. I was like, right. no, 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 you always want to leave that little bit in the tank. And yes. that's really, really hard a message to, rel- to relay to somebody. Mm-hmm. Because, again, there's this mentality of if more is better, more is better. And it's like, yes. yeah, but there's tomorrow and there's next week and there's next month. <laughs> and as somebody that did this professionally for almost two decades, I know how important it is to not leave it all on the road every single day. Mm -hmm. because that's what you do on game day. You know, when you've got a number pinned on, then you can leave it all on the road. You can do that extra credit. You can do the extra Watts because in theory you should be five to 10% better on race day than, than anything you did Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a true thoroughbred, you know, somebody that that shows up on game day and we've all had the athletes that are the opposite of that, you know, they can crush it Monday through Friday and then they just don't seem to have it on, on game Mm -hmm. day. And that's, those are, those are tough athletes to, to handle. But yeah, my philosophy is just, you know, really, really take your, your rest seriously and, and, and conversely take your, your hard days uh, very serious yep. as well. So, um, I work for Velocious Cycling Adventures. We have kind of two components mm-hmm. to the, to the company. We have a coaching aspect and then also camps we run about, uh, prior to COVID. We do about six or eight camps uh, around the world. I Spain, West coast, East coast, Midwest here in the U S. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Owned by Tim Cusick, who is the inventor, writer, creator of WKO four and five. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's a great uh, a great mentor uh, and teacher to to myself. You know, a lot of my philosophies and, and my style of coaching is comes from, from the trenches and, and the time that I spent uh doing this and, and being coached by some very, very good uh coaches like Dean Gullich and, and Alan Lim. So a lot of it is firsthand knowledge that hey, if it worked for me, it's probably gonna work for you, mm-hmm. uh is sort of my philosophy. But um, but I certainly, you know, there's an analytical side to it as well, um, with, yeah. with WKO5 and, and, and really pouring through the data and everything. So, Yeah. Yeah. you know, I think being consistent is super important, especially as an older athlete, you know, if you're in your forties, fifties, you know, being very consistent, not missing, you know, um, multiple days in a row. I mean, I get the best results obviously out of, out of the students that I have that are, that are, that are good students, you know, the guys that don't miss workouts, uh, mm-hmm. guys or girls, um, that's key. That's key. Um, I, you know, we've all had that athlete that just will randomly do a workout and then miss three or four days and then randomly do a workout. Yeah. And then they're like, Hey, so I've got a race coming up this weekend. What do you think? And I was like, yeah, uh, I, I have no idea because <laughs> you've not given me a lot of data and right. you're just kind of haphazardly, you know, I'm not really sure what you're, what you're paying me for, but, right, um, right. but that's, that's the 1%. I mean, 99% of people that hire me are serious enough that they, uh, they, they're actually more better students than I probably was mm. as, as a, as an athlete. So, mm. um, I tend to just look at every block as a five to seven day period. And, and I was like, okay, it's snowing today. So I'm not going to do five hours in the mountains, but it's yeah. in two days. The sun's going to be out. So I'll do, you know, so I was pretty good at just kind of shuffling things around and saying, yeah, I don't hope this is okay, but uh, you know, I, I will get the long day and it's just not going to be on Wednesday. It's going to be on Friday. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, most of my athletes are a little too scared, I think, to do that, or they just, you know, mm-hmm. they don't want to rock the boat uh, unfortunately, most of them live in, in places where weather's not really an issue. So. Okay. So, how many athletes do you coach now? Uh, I've got about six or eight right now. I'm just kind of okay. scattered around. Um, and east what's and, your east and west coast? What's your demographic look like? Are you coaching a lot of masters or juniors or just? I cat- mostly masters. I've got a couple of full time, um, semi pro types that, okay. are, that are younger, you know, in their thirties, looking so. for the contract. Yeah. Kinda, yeah. Okay. Okay. Which are actually really fun people to to. Uh, the coach, you know, they're, they're extremely good adapters and, um, you just, you know, you see results almost right away Yeah. where, you know, the, the, the working type, we can worry that's got 10 to 12 hours. You just don't see the, the gains as much. There's only so much you can work with, but, but right. somebody that has unlimited time that can put in 20, 25 hours, 30 hours. I mean, you really, yeah, really see, see big, big gains, big yeah. gains yeah. there.
1: Yeah. And how about your, let's take a macro picture of you. How many, what's your percentage of men versus women coached, you think maybe in the last I'll say a decade of coaching or something like that. How many like if you had to guess are you coaching 80% men, 20% women or it's 90 10? It's honestly 10, been
0: about 50-50 for me. 50-50, uh, good yeah, for you. Throughout yeah. and then I've been doing okay. this for about 10 years. Okay. Um and a lot of that comes from, you know, a lot of the clients I have, I've I've actually met at our camps and so right. they spend, you know, a week or 10 days writing with that person and kind of understanding a little bit about, about their personality and, and Yeah. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, I'm kind of a stress reliever. You know, they've got super high stress jobs and they want to exceed, you know, uh, excel rather in, in cycling. And, and they just see me as a person that can sort of calm them down and kind of bring them down to a right. a, a more calm place. And so, you know, we're, we're chatting once a week, you know, for an hour or so about about life and about cycling and, and all those things. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's part coach, part shrink, I guess. <laughs> I think any coach yeah. realizes
1: after a period of time
0: that's really yeah. yeah part of the job. And just how to balance, you know, the stress of – you know whether you're a heart surgeon or a veterinarian or an anesthesiologist how to how to how to balance those those life stresses with the time on the bike right and and, and I think that can certainly be done and um and the two can certainly play off each other pretty well
1: I agree yeah, yeah that's the Rate limiting factor, I always remind my athletes about the performance management chart, which tracks your load over a whole season. It's like, that's only on the bike load. It doesn't account for the fight you had with your wife at 1 a.m. or the raccoons that woke you up humping in your backyard at 4 a.m. or Or whatever random stuff. Or the only three hours of
0: sleep you got last night. Yep. Yeah.
1: We'll put a link to VelociousCyclingAdventures.com in our show notes, but then I just said it. So your memory is perfect and you are going to look it up as you need to make the keyboard mudras. Thank you very much, Scott, for being on the show today. I really appreciate you making time to come in. And Thanks for having me. It's been let fun. Let me share war stories. and You were very patient.
0: Lots of war stories. Lots of war stories between, of war of us. Stories
1: between yeah. us. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you for uh, – you played a mentor role for me in many of my early racing days. So I appreciate you being the Iceman and showing me the right thing to do at the right time. There were, there were a few moments where you gave me a good nudge in the right direction. Probably not vocally, that. but maybe uh, just other, other, other ways. But that's just as yeah. important, you know, like you said, lead like Al McCormick, lead by example. You don't always have to go up to somebody and tell them you're being a moron, pull through less hard. You can just do it a few times and show them how to ride smoothly in the group. If they're still not getting it, it may yeah. be time to say something. So I don't know. You didn't say much to me that maybe had more to do with your personality than yeah, I didn't less say mu- to do I didn't with my idiocy. <laughs> but yeah, Mike Carter was vocal to me. So anyway, thank you, Scott. Thank you. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guest's opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at That's all spelled just like it sounds, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.